and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. The issue of consent at the moment is a very sensitive and delicate one to manage when it comes to educating young people, especially teenagers and students. We all want to get this problem right and create an emotionally cognizant and self-aware group of young men going forward. However, if you get this education wrong, you can very quickly alienate young boys and drive them into the arms of problematic online influencers if they believe they are being unfairly demonised. At Vent, we believe these toxic or problematic influences are the symptom, not the cause of the problem. And if we are to create the next generation of emotionally intelligent, healthy and above all respectful young men, we must get this right. Otherwise, it will become a game of online whack-a-mole. If society cancels one problematic male influencer, another one will soon quickly pop up, possibly putting out an even more problematic core message to them. My special guest for today's episode is a woman who is trying to do this in the right way. Dr Emily Setti is Senior Lecturer at the University of Surrey and she focuses on research around young people and their relationships, harmful sexual behaviour and online harms. In this episode we tackle the issue of consent education and wider sex education for young people today, especially young men. We discuss why, in her research, so many young men are scared of having false allegations of sexual abuse made against them how we have got to this point and the implications of it on their ability to develop meaningful relationships as men, as adults. We break down the myth of oppressor and oppressed label that some parts of society are seeking to paint young boys and girls with and how we educate both sexes properly about this issue without alienating one over the other, although sadly this is happening with the former right now with boys. We also discuss how we educate boys how to spot the signs of coercive control and domestic abuse in their relationships when so many adult men still have no idea how to do this. And we also talk about the wider conversation which still refuses to acknowledge female domestic abuse. We also go on to talk about the importance of building trust in these boys in order for them to discuss these issues openly in group settings without resorting to stereotypical comedy, self-deprecation or bravado. We finish that topic by discussing the biological differences between men and women when it comes to mental health and avoiding a one-size-fits-all approach to young men's mental health. For Emily's mental health, Emily's father died suddenly when she was 21 years old after suffering with mental health difficulties for most of her life. And he also had issues around addiction. We discuss how the grief affected her and why she took on the support role for the rest of her family, unfortunately to the detriment of her own mental health. And after starting her job as a university lecturer, a combination of factors led to her developing an eating disorder, specifically anorexia. And we discuss how and why it developed and how it manifested, how the medical system treated or didn't treat it and how she overcame it. We finish by discussing how that grief manifested in people pleasing in her adult life, 
how she's put positive mechanisms in place to manage it, and the reaction people pleasers in recovery get, like me and like Emily, from other people when we finally set positive and healthy boundaries. So this is how my conversation with the brilliant Dr. Emily Setti went. Emily, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. After you did that brilliant conversation with Jeremy and Dika on his podcast, I was very keen to get you on as I think our goals are fully aligned on how we can help young men and their mental health. Firstly, how are you on this Friday morning? Yeah, all good. Thanks. Good to be here. Really pleased. And thanks for inviting me on. And I'm excited to chat to you. Yeah, no problem. We've got an absolute mountain to talk about. I ended up writing about nine pages of notes for this. So let's see how quickly we can get through it. (laughs) Without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, sure. Emily, I want to start your podcast by talking about your journey in academia. So first of all, how did you start it? What inspired you? And just tell me about the journey to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So my academic journey started with my undergrad degree, which I did in psychology. I've always been interested in that subject and just generally like the idea of the human condition and why we are the way we are and and everything. And then after that, I didn't go straight into my master's. I worked with ex-offenders for a while in a like resettlement hostel after they were coming out of prison. I was quite interested in like criminal behaviour and getting into that field. And I then did a master's in criminology and criminal justice while working for the Ministry of Justice as a researcher. I knew I kind of wanted to do more research oriented stuff rather than being in a practice like more applied setting. And I then did some research with a charity on young people involved in gangs and youth violence. And then from all of that and my master's, I became like increasingly interested in why we criminalise young people for their behaviour and with what effect and whether it's helpful or unhelpful. And at that time, there was quite an increasing emphasis on young people's online sexual behaviours and what they were doing. And that was predominantly, well, less so now, but we can talk about that, I guess, later, being responded to from like a criminalisation perspective, like a criminal justice angle, particularly around like illicit imagery of minors that was being and still is shared around by young people as part of their contemporary relationship practices. And so I got funded to do a PhD to investigate that and to think about how we respond to these new and emerging patterns of behaviour that young people are getting up to online, um, including when they become risky and abusive and otherwise harmful. And so for where I am right now, following my PhD, kind of branched off into like two main directions. One, the like general state of sex and relationships for young people. And that's become more and more connected with like harmful sexual behavior, peer on peer abuse. And that's where the consent stuff comes in that we'll be talking about more today. And then also just like online harms more broadly for young people and how they're affected by being online for better or worse. Mm. So that's kind of the potted history of where I am at now. (laughs) A very good whistle-stop tour for sure. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about sex and consent, I spoke with previous guest Dr. Andrew George Thomas about his PhD and how he had to self-fund his PhD to a certain degree because he was working class academic. So how much did your financial situation play into your necessity to work and study? Because you did work full time as well alongside it. Yeah, yeah. So there was no question that I would be able to like 
self-fund my PhD just off the back of like money that I had, you know, and that is um, a really challenging thing for PhD students to do full stop, like not just me. And yeah, you know, I knew I had to try and get some funding. I knew I had to work alongside it. I had like a supportive partner who like helped me through it. You're really going back to like, even when you get funded on like a studentship, you're going back to like student days, right? Of like how you're going to be managing your money. That's why I never wanted to go back. Oh God, honestly, (laughs) And I think actually it's really inaccessible and not very inclusive at all, like for people from like different class backgrounds. And the funding is really hard to compete for. And you've got to have quite a lot of like, this is why I can do this PhD. And for me, my ability to do it rested on the fact that I had worked for quite a long time and I built up quite a lot of skills and experience that meant I kind of felt able to do a PhD. So I'm like 27 when I started and you're going right back to those days of like literally counting out your money. And I'm very glad now to not have to, I look back on that time of doing my PhD, like how did I even do this for like three years? So yeah, you know, it is a problem and and it's a problem on an individual level, but I think it's also a problem for like the general field of academia because it's not diverse in terms of class and Mm. socioeconomic background on that level. And it's a sort of separate topic, isn't it, to what we're talking about today. But I think a lot of like diversity and inclusivity agendas have been around race and sexual orientation and all of that kind of thing, which is like really important. We need that, but like not so much class. And yeah, I think that's a bit of an issue for sure. Yeah. It's one of my eternal battles right now with the conversation, but there we go. Separate podcast. Mm -hmm. You finished your PhD at 30 years old and it must've felt like you've been in education almost your whole life by that point so why did you decide to stay in academia and not use the PhD for a role outside of it did you ever feel maybe slightly institutionalized in education (laughs) I'm totally institutionalized yes (laughs) we all are I could not do a job outside of academia like I really hope I'm I'm never fired because I would not know (laughs) how to function in like a normal job and I knew from like a really young age like I loved learning and learning for learning's sake and studying and like all of that and I really wanted that and obviously I didn't know necessarily oh you can do a PhD But like, if you look back about when I was like seven years old and away, I was like, I just like be getting bits of paper and I just like writing random stuff. Like it was just the way my mind worked. So in a way, looking back, it was always probably inevitable that I would um, go down this route. And I think I found work environments quite stifling for as much as the notion of academic freedom and the crisis of free speech on campus. And I get all of those debates are quite contested, but you're as free as you're ever going to be to be able to say and do things um, in academia. And yeah, you've got to play the game and yeah, you've got to like be responsive to bureaucratic and wider social concerns around what you can say and do. But I found that less so in an academic environment, say, than I did when working for Ministry of Justice or even when working for like charities, you've still got to be responsive to everything that's going on. And, and I like the idea that you can kind of push back on 
on stuff within the academic environment. And I kind of enjoyed that side of it and being able to pursue your own passions and areas of interest in a quite independent way. But yeah, you certainly are institutionalized because that's not the normal way of being. You know, within academia, you are allowed to publicly criticize your own institution. You would not be able to do that in any other way. Like you go on Twitter and you see what academics are writing about the university that employs them. I mean, it's just, it's crazy, right? And just the way you can sort of organize your day. I mean, what I really compare it to is like being self-employed a little bit because no one cares really what I do with my time. As long as I turn up to meetings and I do the teaching for students that I need to do, if I don't publish any papers or I don't win any grant funding, yeah, I won't get promoted. Like I'll just sit in my office and everyone will ignore me. Like no one cares what I do. I care what I do and I have to make those opportunities for myself. And you've got to be quite entrepreneurial about finding your own research identity and like getting this stuff done. And on some level, that is really high pressure. But on another level, it brings so much freedom. So when I talk to my friends that are like self-employed, I can really connect with that idea of like, yeah, the butt stops with you. No one cares whether this is a success other than you. But that also brings its excitement. And that's what I love about it. Let's move on to the reason you're on the podcast today, Emily, which is your work on sex and consent in young people and teenagers. Now, before we dive into the topic, I just want to set the scene for the listeners and the historical context and the last maybe five, 10 years about how we got here. So give the listeners a bit of a a history lesson, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Recent history. So it's not too dry or whatever. Yeah, yeah, Get into the whole history. Yeah, not the 60s. Let's not go back to the 60s. Maybe like the 2010s onwards, maybe. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I always kind of think about it in terms of like my memory of this as like a young person. And I think what we've got now is like a huge kind of public conversation about young people's sexual behavior and consent and like how that all plays into it in ways that just was like non-existent maybe when I was growing up. And what I find kind of interesting is like when I talk to teachers and other adults, it's like, oh yeah, harmful sexual behavior, peer on peer abuse, it's all this stuff going on right now. And like, we didn't have social media and we didn't have all these like threats and issues. And I'm but like, there were still harms going on. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, what school did you go to? Because there was like loads of dodgy stuff going on when I was growing up. We just did. There's a lot of bad it. stories from my school. I can't oh tell on this podcast. <laughs> exactly. And I'm, yeah, oh God. Yeah. Like 100%, like not telling the stories for yeah. sure because they are pretty awful. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I get it. There are these new patterns of behavior because of like social media and technology and all the rest of it 100 percent. but like we still had the behaviors we just didn't talk about them and it's like, just documented now yeah. exactly yeah. yeah and like lessons on sex ed or whatever were like yeah put a condom on a banana it wasn't what's a healthy relationship what's the definition of consent as naff as those lessons are oftentimes right now we didn't even have them at all and we have seen you know if we're talking like 2010s onward we have had the movements haven't we we've had the me too movement We've had like the equivalent of that within school environments. Everyone's invited. And that kind of stuff, for better or worse, has led to a real focus on the nature of sexual interactions, not just among young people, but also adults as well. And what actually constitutes like a good and healthy, legitimate set of interactions. And that's often organised around consent. It's the idea of, is it consensual or not? And that we can use that framework 
rightly or wrongly, to define that interaction as acceptable or not. And young people are definitely aware of that, like wider social and cultural context and all those discourses and developments that they're being exposed to. And so I think that's a really interesting time for them to be developing within because they've got this like landscape of is what you're doing consensual? What does it mean for sex to be wanted or not wanted? And and so on. And teachers and staff feel, and parents and others, feel a, like a responsibility to incorporate that into mm. like, we've got to be guiding young people on this stuff now. We've got to be intervening to address what's going on. And it's kind of interesting because these are the adults like us that didn't have that sex education like we went through all of our issues we've got a whole load of internalized issues in our relationships right and we're trying to guide the young people through what we think they're getting up to so the space that all this is happening in is quite interesting to me and I think just because we have awareness as adults and they do as young people and there's a whole language around it doesn't mean necessarily that we're getting it right and that there aren't still a lot of problems with how we as adults are dealing with it but also like Mm. for the young people still. You mentioned Me Too there and Me Too did so much positive work for elevating the voices of women who had been sexually abused or lived in fear of reporting abuse because of losing their job or reputation, particularly in the arts and industries where it started, television, cinema. And, you know, without doubt, I think without it, I don't think I'd have felt brave enough to talk about my own experience of CSA. Things like the offside trust were massive in that sense for men. However, do you think, hang on, let me rephrase that. Where do you think the pendulum has swung now? Yeah. Okay. That's an open question, but clearly. Yeah, I didn't want to yeah, bias the question. Yeah. I'll no, say, where yeah, has yeah. the pendulum swung? Yeah, because there is that idea, isn't there, of like pendulum swinging and one extreme to the other. And I, yeah, and it's difficult because I think as we're going to talk more as we go through this conversation, like what I try to do is challenge this idea of like a zero sum game of rights and developments, like this idea that like a pendulum swings in like one person's interest and then to the other person's. And I hate that kind of narrative, but absolutely there was this sort of entrenched normalization of like abusive patterns of behavior going on within particular industries that did need to be exposed. And, and this idea of like, who's responsible for that and who should feel blameworthy like all of that was an issue right the pendulum was at 100 and you know this idea of like people finding their voice and, and actually women saying well I do need to find my voice in other ways and social media and stuff because you can say oh do you process this and that and it's like well yeah but like when you go and report sexual offences, people were not being believed and the system was not serving them. And so you could see why people were like, right, well, let's bandy together and do it differently. And so I completely get that and I I support that. And exactly as you say, it encouraged people to come forward and it really, you know, showcased stuff that needed to be brought out into the public sphere. And I get all of that. For me, the issue in terms of what has unfolded is overspill I think you would probably say yeah 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 and it's this idea that like an overly legalistic framing of the issues that are being spoken about I think what me too has led to is a general cultural conversation about the nuances of consent and what constitutes a wanted and unwanted sexual experience And those are important conversations to have. Who is sex for? What constitutes pleasure? The idea that like, and I know it for myself, 
every woman that you speak to will talk about sexual experiences that they found violating and unpleasant, right? And we've all been there and we've all acquiesced to sexual encounters that we didn't really want to acquiesce to, but we have. And there's a big conversation to be had about that. The problem, though, is that it gets framed around this black and white legal construct of consent. And so when we want to talk about those experiences, suddenly the guys involved in those experiences become, oh, well, like you're a perpetrator then. And it's like, no, like we've got to step away from those binary ideas. Like just because an experience feels violating or feels unwanted doesn't mean that the guy that was involved is like this awful perpetrator that needs to now be proceeded against legally. And a lot of actually the kind of academic proponents of Me Too don't even really want that to be the outcome. Like we want to talk about a continuum of consent. We want to talk about like breakdown of communication where like the guy was doing one thing and the, the woman was feeling another thing and like what's going on within that space. Like there's a lot of grey areas. There's a lot of like sexual scripts being brought to that encounter that are really interesting to unpick. But the way in which public discourse operates within this country on a lot of topics does not enable that nuance to come into the field. And I can see why certain men and boys and stuff feel, you know, you're throwing me under the bus here because this is being made public on social media. And now I'm being told that I'm something that I didn't think I was. And and where are we headed with this? We're getting further and further apart. And I mm. and I think that set of developments is I think it's feeding into like a current state of public discourse that does not enable any mm. nuance or coming together. And when you're talking about heterosexual gender relations, that is not a direction of travel that I think is positive at all. No. I spoke with friend of the pod and a really brilliant journalist called Kat Rosenfield about mm-hmm. this and how certain stories and examples about a bad day or a miscommunication got lumped in historically in the last sort of five to six years with horrific stories of sexual abuse by genuinely predatory men. So mm-hmm. someone like Aziz Ansari, for example, was chucked under the bus by an anonymous person on a random website called babe.net that's never been heard of since. And his name was used in the same breath as a horrific and completely disgusting man like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby or whoever. Do you think that has had more of an impact than we perhaps initially first thought? Yeah, you know, and I think we do need to enter into this discussion when we share our stories in good faith and responsibly, because we've got to think, okay, to what extent is this going to actually move us forward in a positive direction? Because often when we want to talk about anything to do with relationships is that people go on the defensive I mean, we all know this, right, in our relationships. If you put out, I feel like this, or, you know, you did this and I feel uncomfortable about it, often people's reaction will be, oh, yeah, but no, I didn't really do that. And I thought this, and it's a defence thing, right? And that's a natural thing. And that's probably where most people's arguments come from. And what do we advise in terms of moving forward is empathy and perspective taking and curiosity about each other where we try to understand each other's angle right and I think when we're getting down into these gray areas and we'll talk more about this I think later around some of the work that I try and do with boys is how can we create spaces whereby we lose some of that defensiveness and we enter into those interactions with curiosity and interest and to me yeah women probably feel 
that they're having uncomfortable sexual experiences that they would like to talk about. And maybe that happened with this Aziz Ansari guy, like some bad sex experience. But it wasn't rape. <laughs> but it wasn't rape. And so how do we talk about that in ways that invite a conversation of like, guys, like when you do certain things, this is how we feel. And like, how do we get that empathy going? But also We've, girls vocalise how you're feeling if you don't want X-Man to do this or what. Yeah. And say, no, fine. Because that's what she didn't do. She eventually did. And then in the article, it says he immediately stopped and refrained from doing anything else. A hundred, and I say to guys, like boys that I work with, I'm like, okay, what space, like why might a girl not feel able to communicate within a kind of sexual interaction? And we talk about like awkwardness and rejection and all of this stuff how can we create conversations between males and females boys girls men women sure where we can talk about all the different perspectives in the room that are going on in a sexual situation without this like you're a perpetrator well you're this you're that no like strip all that out and let's like talk in a completely different way and with the way we tell our stories for me the question i always ask is this helping or hindering a better mm. quality set of interactions between men and women where they can understand each other better without the attack and defense line, without the like, well, you did this, well, you did that. Like, no, no, forget all that. Let's be more curious. Let's be more empathetic. And like I say to the guys, I'm like, well, if you're struggling in a situation, if you're feeling pressure, if you're feeling awkward, well, your partner probably is too. So let's try and move that on in a positive way rather than seeing each other as the enemy. I hate that set of narratives. I don't think it's helpful. And I think we need to enter into these discussions with a lot more, yeah, like good faith, basically, that we want to improve the situation, not just bring people down for the sake of it. Before we move on, there was another infamous example, which I think has had quite a big impact, which was in 2018. And it was something that was colloquially called the shitty media men list. Can you just remind the listeners who don't know about it, what that story was and why it was so problematic? And you could, because you mentioned due process, there wasn't any due process there. Yeah. And this is a really interesting example, actually. So, so for those that don't know, it was an anonymous Google spreadsheet that was circulated by women with accounts of like men in the media industry who were engaging in a whole range of behaviours. So like... Allegedly. Allegedly. allegedly yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so all the way up to like allegations of rape, but just also like just problematic behaviour that wasn't necessarily illegal, but, you know, like, yeah, maybe not like the most sort of edifying of behaviours and so on. And so you had this whole like bunch of allegations within this, this spreadsheet and it's being circulated. But the women are, are anonymous but like the men sometimes are being like named and stuff and what's really and, and so you and it was a public spreadsheet anyone could so input public, into it that's definitely not going to be abused is it oh god i mean so you can see where this heads you know talking about does this contribute positively to the landscape of discussion yeah complete disaster some of these men are investigated and they're fired from their job my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong on this, so don't quote me on this, is that no criminal investigations were brought and no criminal kind of prosecutions were brought. So the idea of like due process or whatever isn't like there at all because it didn't even go down that route to begin people with. Got, people lost their jobs. Like... Yeah, but people are still losing their jobs and stuff. So like, yeah, there was an interesting set of outcomes. What is interesting though underneath it is that the initial intention with this spreadsheet was what do they call it like a whispering thing or whatever between women where like basically women always have like given each other the heads up of yeah like, i get you I this get you. guy's yeah, yeah. a bit dodgy you know watch out look for out him. for him look yeah, out yeah, for got him. You. yeah and yeah. the intention with this spreadsheet originally 
was like a digital version of that, right? Women like let's contribute to this and we can all warn each other of like maybe don't make it public then. (laughs) Well, as ever with anything, it gets leaked, doesn't it? I think the original woman who kind of set it up didn't intend for it to be used as like a weapon and be used in this way. But we're in the digital age now. So it was and yeah, then it gets leaked and it's a pile on and you know and these guys and I think what happens is is that it just is another example of the us and them narrative Mm. of the guys coming out and going, look what women do to us. And then the women coming out going, yeah, but look how men react when we expose their behaviour. And and again, I'm not even going to go down the right of who's right and wrong on that. I think both people have got fair arguments there. But does it help? And I just, yeah, I think it's really dismal, actually, when it is that us and them narrative, 100%, isn't Mm. it? When most men, and I think, you know, we'll talk about this more later, just want to have a good time with women and don't want to rape them and don't want to make them feel like crap. And mm. and and how do we enable that to happen whilst dealing with, yeah, the unethical abuse that, that also takes place? Let's talk about that now then. So you do a lot of work on the ground, so to speak, with mm-hmm. young boys and men about their attitudes towards relationships and sex and everything in between so just tell me what the young boys that you speak to are telling you about their fears or issues when it comes to consent and sex yeah sure so a lot of what I try and do with the guys is is bouncing off of the education that they've already received like in school or what they've like even received like informally like what parents have said what they've seen on social media and all the rest of it and I try and get to grips with okay like what are you taking from that and how is that affecting you and so on and, and yeah, what I think is the issue is they've got quite a lot of anxiety because of this conflation of like the law and what they're doing or maybe doing. Most boys I speak to are not experienced at all sexually and don't have any like confidence in the sexual arena. And, and this idea of, OK, they're being taught the law around what constitutes consent and they're being told, right, you need like free and informed agreement. It's got to be given with capacity. And so there are issues there around like the age of the person, but like particularly intoxication, like alcohol and stuff is like the key thing on that for like most teenagers. And you've got to get all that. And if you don't, you're potentially breaking the law. And the implicit message is that you as the boy are the potential perpetrator. You're the one who've got get consent. You're the one who could be told that you did something illegal. And what's interesting as well, a lot of the schools that I go into teach affirmative consent. So they teach yes means yes, and anything less than a yes means no, and you can't do it. And that's an interesting set of messages because the law doesn't demand affirmative consent. You don't have to get a yes for it to be legally consensual. Won't go into a whole legal like lesson around it, but you need a reasonable belief that the person you had sexual interaction with gave that free and informed consent with capacity. It doesn't require a yes. It's a lot of things that will be unpicked within a criminal process to identify whether you had that reasonable Mm -hmm. belief. But the boys are taking away this message that if they don't get a clear and direct yes, they could potentially be arrested. And so my first thing is like, that's not true. You need to be going about this a different way. But what that's led to is a whole bunch of anxiety in these boys because they're like, well, 
we don't communicate with a yes. We don't, it's not this, can I do this? Yes or no. Yeah. That's not how people talk. Yeah. Girls, and also, sorry to, sorry to just cut you off there. As Kat said to me, like, if a boy is asking you every time you want to go to the next stage of a sexual interaction, are you okay with this? Are you cool with this? It's the biggest mood killer ever. Oh and most God. boys don't do that. <laughs> no. I mean, it's dismal. It's laughable. It's just, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's never going to happen. And actually, it's not just awkward like mood killer. It's a very risky thing to do because you as the person, if you say, am I okay to do this? And it's the wrong moment. It's a blunder, right? It's like a you've moved too quickly. Like, you know, that, that fear of rejection from that. It's just not, there are so many reasons why we don't interact in that way with each other. It's robotic, um, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And, um, and we're not going to ask too soon for the wrong thing and we we sort of we want to pick up on body language how people responding am i am i managing this right that that's the skill of the intimacy isn't it it's not meant to be turned into something different so it's not happening so yes isn't always present it isn't always spoken about in that way but even if it is it doesn't mean it's free and informed these boys are like yes doesn't always mean yes and so they're quite nuanced actually about the realities of sexual interactions. They're like, people will go along with things that they don't really want to go along with. So even if you get that yes, how are you meant to be sure it means anything? How are you sure that the next day someone's going to turn around and go, well, I didn't really mean it. Am I potentially going to get like arrested for that? And so there's a whole host of anxieties going on for these lads because they don't know how to navigate any of that. But they're being told that if they get it wrong, they're the ones who could get arrested. But also they believe, because they're not horrible kids, they're like, and the girl, like she could walk away feeling like abused or hurt. And like, how do we make sure she doesn't? And how do we make sure it's okay for her? And I think, blimey, boys, like I speak to kids like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 predominantly about this. And I'm like, you are young guys trying to figure out your sexual cultures, trying to figure out your intimate relationships. and it's being framed to you as like all of this is an arrestable thing. Mm. It's like this is horrible, actually. Your introduction to your intimate relationships are fraught with risk and harm and abuse and all this horrible stuff when actually you're just teenagers trying to like work it out. I mean, particularly when you speak to the younger guys, holding a girl's hand is like a moment, you know, and it's huge. And your first kiss and your first time intimate with somebody. And I think some of that public narrative around this is just not cool, actually. It's not the way we should be supporting young people into these experiences. I don't think we want to go back to like what we had when we were younger, when no, no one's even not. talking about anything. But I think there are much better ways that we could do this without layering on all this anxiety onto these kids. Mm. You gave a really sad story to me off air about a mum who had told you that her son is frightened to even approach girls because he's scared he'll be accused of sexual harassment. Now, dismissing the idea that if you put autism into that or ADHD or any other neurological condition or factor which would impair their social ability even more. How did we get to this point where some of these young men believe that the risk of rejection is so high that they will be legally punished for it, not just rejected socially? Yeah. 100% because that's the issue, isn't it? Rejection has always been hard to handle. 
when you protection is hard enough as a young lad to deal with because you're going to get a lot of it very much (laughs) yeah yeah, you've got to get your and you've got to get used to that yeah 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 100 percent. yeah some of the boys i speak to they're like just take it on the chin and move on because take the l and move on you gotta do it yeah you gotta laugh about it you gotta laugh about it yeah totally which is hard by the way a lot of girls don't understand that like Mm -hmm. they really don't get how hard rejection is you've got to build up a lot of resilience to it yeah definitely yeah yeah and i think you know as a woman you learn that as well you you learn like fair play to you mate like you know it's cool I don't want to make you feel any worse about yourself than you already do kind of thing obviously there's the guys that just don't even understand the definition of rejection and you're like how long well they're the dangerous ones as adults they are they are the dangerous ones as adults the ones you can't take no for an answer yeah definitely and actually when I speak to guys about that and you I know I'm going off on a bit of tangent here but like a real thing that women often do is like oh no I've got a partner I've got this I've got that and like you almost got to couch it in certain terms and like some of the guys I speak to say like oh, it's horrible when like women have to like make stuff up because they feel so uncomfortable <laughs> about it. And I think actually like talking about that, like rejection's tough for you, but giving rejection's also hard. And like it's that yeah, coming yeah, no, together a that, bit more, that. isn't it? You know, where we mm. can actually like empathize with each other a bit. But yeah, on the whole like legal thing. Yeah, and I speak to guys who are like, can't be bothered with it anymore. And actually the stats on it, I don't want to like misquote the statistics, but the actual proportion of like young adult men who are not sexually active and not having any intimate relationships with women, but who are actively not even seeking it out because mm, they just think it's up too up far. It. They yeah. just can't be dealing with it. And that is an issue. And I think it's because it's that issue of legally framing everything. Yes. We have tried to resolve the very real problem of like sexual harassment and stuff through warning people that they will get in legal trouble for it. Well, intru- intrusive staring is now a two-year punishable offence yeah. in, in England. And that's the problem. What we've done is we have framed heterosexual interactions in particular in terms of the law. We've said everything that is unacceptable, we want to legally hold you accountable for it. And it's like, okay. That's not really that helpful, though, is it? A lot of these things, inappropriate staring. Yeah, all right. There are probably scenarios where that could constitute some form of harassment. But in most cases... But but that's open to interpretation, though. Oh, God, yeah. And these are social and cultural problems, right? Yes. That we are trying to deal with through the law. And I have loads of opinions about dealing with social and cultural problems Mm. through the law. I know. I think they should be dealt with through social norms and like cultural change, you know. Mm -hmm. And a lot actually of the change in heterosexual gender relations has not come necessarily from the law. It's come from culture change. And the apps. I are yeah yeah yeah, that yeah 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 that's what I mean. That's a separate issue. We'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what I mean. It's it's shaped way more by like social Mm. change around like the way we do things in life. I ask the boys, particularly the older boys, put your hand up if you would knowingly have non-consensual sex or any interaction with a girl that you know she doesn't want, if you could guarantee 100% you wouldn't get arrested for it. So take the legal consequence out of it. Would you do it anyway? And they were all like, oh my God, no. Like I don't want to rape someone. I don't want to abuse someone. And I was like, yeah, sweet then. The law is not actually guiding your behaviour then. Other morals, values and ethics are guiding your behaviour. That's what we need to focus on. The problem though, with putting a legal framework over it, 
is you create a set of legal consequences that become yes. too risky. And yes. so these guys the are like, yeah. not, I'm not going down this route then because I'm not taking the risk. It's yeah. not worth it. If and- the difference between a bad approach and a successful one is a prison sentence in their view, which it could be interpreted to be now yeah. if you make the wrong move in public, especially, then mm-hmm. they'll be like, well, it's just not worth it. I'll either approach in a bar or a club and that's it. Or the yeah. apps or even that, just the apps, and which is me, more risky, by the way, for women, yeah. massively. Oh God, yeah. To- <laughs> and this is the thing. What I said to that mum was we need another narrative. We need to be talking to these kids about what constitutes a healthy, positive set of interactions. How do you approach someone in a way that doesn't feel violating to that person? Because there are different ways of approaching somebody, like yes. 100%. Like, and we do need to be saying, like, guys, if you do it in this way, that is going to make someone feel weird. But if you do it in this way, it's cool. Cards on the table here. It's really nice to be approached like as a woman and I'm sure as a guy as well it's it's great you get a little ego boost from it it's all sweet you go on with your day even if you don't necessarily want to do anything with that guy that message isn't out there though Emily that message isn't out there right now that is totally different being approached by a guy who goes oh you know like I, I might be overstepping here but I just wanted to say like you look nice you know you look like the kind of girl I could be into or whatever like you know wanna do whatever like not do whatever I don't know how people talk anymore I have obviously not been approached for such a long time but but you know what I mean it's it's okay you know if it's done in an all right way little ego boost go on with your day being hollered at by some guy that just wants to show off in front of his mates and he says something really explicit and gross no not cool like there are different ways of doing it and I think we need to be talking to young people something I say to kids is that if you are going with the genuine intention of wanting to make that person feel good and you are genuinely vibing them or whatever, you will probably not get it too wrong. If you're going with the intention that like you just want to like show off in front of your mates or you just want to do something and you're just almost objectifying that person in a way that's got nothing to do with them, it's more to do with like your status and what you're looking for out of it, then you're probably going to get it wrong because it's not about the person in front of you, it's about you. Whereas, is but if you are motivated, it goes back to that good faith thing. If you're motivated to do it in a positive way, then yeah, the the worst case, yeah, you're going to get rejected. You might look a bit stupid, and yeah, that's on you. You've got to figure out is that worth the risk or not to look a bit stupid. But hopefully, you're not going to walk away having made that person feel bad about themselves or uncomfortable within that space. Mm. And that's where it goes down to that intrusive staring. Yeah, like that is horrible. Like women have all been there where some guy is just sat there staring at you and you are like, what are they thinking? What is going to happen here? And it is super awkward. I don't think it should be a criminal offence, but it is awkward. But it goes back to that idea of like, think in your head, why am I doing this? How might that person feel? But we're not having those conversations. We're just telling them it's illegal. Don't do it. So of course, we're not moving on in a positive way with these boys and helping them understand what would constitute a positive interaction. So of course they're just bailing on it because it's not worth Mm. it. And when you build the narrative from the oppressor versus oppressed model, it becomes very difficult to build bridges, A, and B, it's very easy to alienate young boys, as we know, and send them into the arms, as they have done, of problematic male influencers like Andrew Tate, like Sneeko, there is a vacuum here that's been left and they have just taken over and mm-hmm. taken the place of someone like Jordan Peterson, who, regardless if you agree or disagree with a lot of his political beliefs, his original mantra was actually quite positive, personal responsibility, owning your shit, cleaning your room, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So 
where would you stand on it? Yeah, and like disclosure, I I actually have a lot of time for Jordan Peterson. He's an evolutionary psychologist, basically, isn't he? And some of the stuff he comes out with, I find a little bit deterministic. But... Yeah, the God stuff is not really for me and yeah, other stuff. Yeah, but... <laughs> um, yeah some of actually, you know, some of when he disentangles it, I'm like, okay, I kind of get what you, where you come from. But but yeah, I mean, I'm not like, but, yeah, so, yeah. But a lot he, of these rules I live by, has yeah, to like, keep your back I, up straight. Don't comment on other someone's life before sorting your life out. Clean your room, like... I was already on my way to the recovery part of self-actualization before I read his books, but his books basically just turbocharged my own clarity of thought. And I I find it really sad that his original books got vilified so much because when I actually read them, I was like, wow, this is really not controversial. (laughs) Yeah, I think the controversy was around the evolutionary ideas of masculinity and femininity. But that's just a theory that people can debate. It doesn't have to be this big deal. I mean, this is what I mean about the whole public discourse right now. I mean, when did evolutionary psychology become this big controversy? I mean, I studied undergrad psychology. We studied evolutionary psychology. I don't don't really get it. And now I, I listen to quite a few of his podcasts and I like the way he enters into discussions. I think his detractors may be should engage with some of his long form stuff, because even if they disagree with him, the way he has debates is really eye opening. And I don't agree with everything he says, but it's refined my thinking massively around loads of topics in Mm. in this field. But anyway, putting that to the side, I hate the oppressor and oppressed model. I mean, if we're saying Jordan Peterson is deterministic, what the hell is the oppressed oppressor model all about? Because I don't think that's helpful for girls or boys right Mm. like this victim narrative i i I think is really negative i think it closes off the scope for female pleasure and female agency and i think it it really confuses boys about their role because they're being told that they're powerful they're being told they could hurt people but often they don't feel that on the inside so they're battling this sort of inner subjectivity with like this wider cultural idea so like for example, like male privilege, but oh, they're also God. working class boys who are failing in school or have ADHD and can't yeah. they get labeled as troublemakers. Do you know what I mean? Like if they're getting that message, but then they're feeling like, well, I'm not actually ahead in life here. It actually turbo boosts their vulnerability to being victims themselves or thinking yes. they're victims, which is the Definitely. worst thing possible. <laughs> I think exactly. I think it also like fractures our understanding or their understanding of, of themselves and the world around them. Because if you have this conflict between your situation and how you feel and your life versus a narrative and you're like well where do I go with this like for example some of the boys I've spoken to have said okay like because of this oppressed oppressor narrative we are responsible for consent all of the time we are always responsible and I said well how about though when like you're being approached by a girl like what about your consent and they'll be like, no, no, even if the girl's coming to you, you've got to check she's really consenting. Yeah. And she goes, because the bigger narrative kind of thing is, is that girl could be harmed. And I reflected on this because I, okay, so off the bat, well, that's problematic because what about your consent? What about if that is unwanted for you? Like, where is your articulation of anything to do with how you feel in that situation? And what are you doing with that girl's agency? Because that girl's coming towards you, like you're denying her agency in any of that decision making. Mm. What I thought with that, is it's interesting, isn't it? Because from a sort of like social norms angle, there are situations, and I know I've been there, and I know girls have been there, where they will propose sex to a boy because they think that's what that boy wants. And so maybe if we're talking about what does it mean to be a good guy, there is some legitimacy of a guy going, yeah, I'm up for it, but like, like, don't worry about it. Like, if, if you're not really feeling that, like, I don't, like, I'm not necessarily like saying we've got to do it. There might be some 
benefit to that when you're young to say something like that. It's when the gender norm becomes so rigid, it's when those categories of oppressor become so rigid, the only way these guys can interpret that situation is I've got to double check her consent. And it's like, that is just so deterministic. That is so essentialized that I don't think it's remotely helpful. Yeah, I always think it's the risk element because if, say, you're on a night out and you're a boy in this situation and some girl is very, very drunk or noticeably more drunk than you, say, and you're drunk already and she proposes sex to you, you may be self-aware to go, this girl is way too drunk. The risk of me saying yes to this and then blah blah oh, blah. God. Yeah, Do you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? But but you've got to think about that as a, as a, as a lad. That's, that's the thing. thing. That's got... the truth. Huh? Yeah, and you've got all these sort of boxes, haven't you? That you you've got a tick that you're you're navigating with that. And to go back to your original question about the influencers, I think yes, these guys are filling a gap. I've all I say to teachers, parents, everyone, stop banging on about how bad Andrew Tate is. And look in the freaking mirror because the gap look at the symptom is look caused at by the us. symptom. Yeah. yeah. If we had done a better job, these guys would be getting no traction. And I think the reason, I mean, I don't know. This is my armchair like interpretation of it. <laughs> it's the fracturing of identity is the gap that they are filling because it's these guys that are like, well, the cultural discourse is one thing about being this all powerful male privilege oppressive person. I'm not feeling or living any of that reality on an individual level, even though I can kind of observe stuff. So the boys will say, like, I don't feel it. But, yeah, like when you're with a group of guys, they do say stuff about girls and they do this. And I've got to participate in this whole thing. And so so they've got this thing of like, it's kind of real, but I don't really feel that it's real. And I'm this. And they're all like trying to work it out. And nobody is helping them navigate all those things. What they're being told, I hate, uh, hate this so much. <laughs> Do you know what they're being told by certain people is, yeah, it is very uncomfortable, isn't it, dealing with power and privilege and to sit with the idea that you are privileged. Isn't that awkward for you to have to process it? No, it is not awkward to process my power that I didn't realise I had. What is awkward is the identity split that I cannot piece all this together because it's not as real or as simple as the male privilege narrative is saying that it is. And we are ideologically imposing something onto them. We are not helping them navigate the breakdown between inner subjectivity and cultural norms around power and all of that. We can say those cultural norms exist, but we should not read off from them to the individual sat in front of us and tell that individual that the reason they're struggling is because they are finding it uncomfortable to acknowledge their privilege. Like, can we just mm. can that? Because Victim that is not blaming. True. I wonder where that's got us in life. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, no, no. And that's why these influencers are so attractive. Because they don't victim blame because them. Because they're that's not the thing. doing that. Yeah. They're doing something else. The problem is what they're doing... Is they're chucking in the toxic views with it? Yeah. Oh, God. It's like, I say to these lads, I'm like, okay, sweet. So, like, Andrew Tate's given you a solution. Right. How's that working out for you? Is his solution working? And they're like, no, it's not working at all. I mean, and that's where Jordan Peterson, maybe, I mean, we shouldn't have thrown him out because even if you disagreed with him, 
now at least he, at like, least he provided a solution that's yeah, what i say at least yeah. he provided a a way path for men to self-actualize and take responsibility for their lives and obviously mm. women found him found him helpful too but you know the narrative is that he predominantly helped a lot of men so. and you know when that film came out it's all right darling or something or don't worry darling or whatever and oh i haven't women, seen it sorry it's yeah, it's, listeners. It, yeah it's yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually I, I didn't mind it but the woman that produced it she was like oh yeah base the main character on jordan peterson because oh like, yeah that was trash that? yeah i saw that it was trash yeah, it was trash yeah yeah, yeah yeah and and it was and he was all like that's so random and he, you know how like, <laughs> he was like who are you <laughs> he, you know how diplomatic he is he was like it's the kind of movie i, I think i would have actually gone and seen and and maybe i would have enjoyed it but, but she's saying it's me and, and all this, and it's just, he's just so like funny how he comes out and stuff. well you know but, i was going to go see the movie yeah, but i'm yeah. not going to now so yeah and it was just like so hilarious but he's like talking about incels and he's like incels i'm like look in the mirror you know like if women don't want to have he sex probably with you, was more harsh on them than he should have been to that's be fair the thing. He's like, you're in your freaking basements like get up yeah. make your bed go out and, do- and so i think he has been sort of misinterpreted on that front and and that is sort of led to the andrew tates of the day who are like mm. you know who are feeding into this narrative of like men have to be a certain way and this is what male success looks like and this is what women have to do and all of this and I actually think a lot of the guys I speak to don't actually believe in any of that. Correct. They can critically consume it and, and interpret it. But that idea of finding a space that actually gives voice to like, maybe it's not so bad being a boy. Maybe all this power I've been told I have, I don't actually have. You know, that is a really enticing set of narratives, but it's our failure that has led to yes. it 100% in my opinion. Yeah, and a lot of the men, I'm not going to include myself in this because I'm not arrogant enough to say that, but a lot of the men who are doing a lot of good work, they're obviously putting out messages that are either not conducive to the mainstream or don't want to be listened to. You know, they won't get the screen time, the airtime, the media coverage, but the ones mm-hmm. that are putting out the toxic stuff will because it's clickbait, it's rage porn, and then mm-hmm. that will then get criticised and the cycle cycle begin. I'm conscious yeah. of time, so I want to I want to move on to sex and consent education strategies mm-hmm. and your opinion on this. So, how do you get them right without alienating boys into thinking it assumes they are just rapists or predators in waiting? Yeah, I mean, for me, I explicitly say it. I'm like, okay, tell me about your experiences to consent education today, and when we talk about that whole idea that assumes that they're going to be initiators and, and all the rest of it. I'm like, right, tell me what you think about that whole narrative. Um, Let's break it down. Because actually, I think the best thing we can do in this consent education is break those categories down and reconceive of them in a more positive direction. Because that will probably equip you more than anything to go out and have better interactions with girls. If we get rid of all that categorization and we get rid of all of that and we talk about what it means to have an interaction with somebody where we're conscious of what might be going on in that room. And what I try and do with the guys is I say, okay, like you're with a girl in a room or a boy, because this is mm-hmm. too super like heteronormative to use a, mm-hmm. a, a word that everyone likes or not. You know, you're in a room with someone else. Yeah. And like something sexual is going down. Talk to me about what's going on in that room. And actually, most of what's happening in that room comes from outside of the room. Like, how did you even get to that room to begin with? So like you're at a party and then you're this and you're flirting yes. and you're doing this and so on and so forth. So you're bringing a whole bunch of expectations from a whole load of interactions that have gone on somewhere before. But also everything that goes on between young people in particular is shaped by like wider peer narratives, Mm -hmm. isn't it? So I say, okay, power in the room, right? How does that work? What are the pressures that might be going on? 
move away from like, well, girls feel them, blah, blah, blah. Actually, like power works in multiple Take them as they ways. are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You know, it depends on like who's more popular, who fancies each other more, who's more attractive, who's more experienced, who's drunk more, who's this, who's that, who's had more, you know, who's a virgin, who's not, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Loads of power dynamics that are going on. And I'm like, okay, right. And that's where they'll say sometimes the boy isn't actually the powerful one in that space. It is so many different things that might be going on. And so what I try and say is, okay, some of that power is actually quite exciting. Pleasure through power is massive sometimes, you know, that idea that like a more popular person is wanting to hook up with you is like super exciting right that's like crack that's like crack cocaine for a boy oh my god yeah (laughs) i've got the hottest girl in the school in this bed with me i mean that is you are buzzing right so what does that do to consent what does all of that stuff do to our ability to make good choices what does it do to our ability to respect the other person's choices because some of the boys will say if you've got your mind on say like one thing with boys a lot is like say you're a virgin and like all your mates have ha- are having sex or saying they're having sex. And like, oh, I've been there. Yeah, 100% <laughs> right. And like, you know, they're saying to you, come on, like, get on with it. Like, just get with anybody. Well, it's got- the ultimate insult, isn't it? You, you can't clap back to that if someone calls yeah. you a virgin and exactly. they know you're a virgin and people know you're a virgin. Yeah. And like, you know, what does that do to your ability to respect the other person in the room? Because the boys will say, when you've got your mind on something else, your mind isn't on that girl. You're not present. You're not present. Yeah. Mm. And so it's about self-awareness. It's about knowing what you bring into the room and what's going on for you. And also what's going on. And therefore using that a bit to do a bit of perspective taking. Mm -hmm. What might be going on for your partner in the room? And how can you manage that situation? And we talk about what are all the reasons people have sex? Because there's dozens and dozens of reasons why people have sex. And what do we need? It's, It's okay to have sex with somebody when you feel a bit ambivalent. Lots of adults have sex. I mean, think of married partners. How much sex <laughs> are they having that they really want? How much are they just doing to get it out of the way? Or, or in a more positive way, like not really in the mood, but like, you know, I'll do it for you. I want to feel intimate. I want to feel this. So much. There's loads of reasons why mm. we have sex. And also there's loads of contextual nuances about what we define as consensual or not like think about the whole unsolicited dick pic thing online like that can feel very violating for like women and girls that are just like bombarded with these images like on social media or dating apps or whatever is horrible however when you get into a more relationship with somebody sending them an unsolicited nude image it's not, oh my God, you violated me. That's non-consensual. No, that's I mean, ex- I couldn't do it for pure anxiety reasons. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking generally. I would here. never want a picture like that relinquishing yeah. control. <laughs> yeah, I totally get you. But when you send something to somebody in that context, it's not defined as non-consensual. So much of it is context specific. Sure, right? sure. How we define consent, right? Okay, maybe this is a bit explicit so i'll try and couch it in the least explicit way possible (laughs) we know with capacity right that certain things hinder capacity alcohol drugs obviously being a key one also so does like being asleep so you should not have sex with somebody who's asleep okay correct and we know that however some of what the boys will say to me is like yeah but like being woken up to oral sex is freaking awesome you know with your partner like if you're in a relationship with them And I'm like, right, okay, so tell me the difference then. What is the difference? 
what are the contexts in which we define whether something is consensual or not? Because if they're saying, well, when you've been with someone for ages and they wake you up like that, you're like, oh my God, that's so cool. And I'm like, right then, but that's capacity. They have, well, if it's a woman, you know, that's gross indecent assault though, legally. And they're like, yeah, but it's not though. And I'm like, right, so we're canning the law in terms of how you interpret this stuff. We're looking at context. We're looking at the nature of your relationships with people. I'm not here to tell you whether that's okay or not to do that to each other. That's the one thing that my message on sex ed all the time, and I say this to parents, is I do not tell your kids what to think about that. I encourage them to think about it. And I encourage them to be critical and look at the other side of it and all the rest of it to hopefully enable them to be more self-aware, to make more mindful choices. And I'm like, be careful with some of those behaviours because you don't know actually how the other person is interpreting it. But I take your point that people do make context specific decisions. They do not just like follow the letter of the rules. There are these factors at play that shape our decision making. Around the like alcohol thing, I have one boy asked me once he was like all right so like we've been told we're not allowed to have sex when we're drunk because like the person doesn't have capacity but like my mum and dad sometimes like go out for meals and stuff and like they're drinking wine and that and then like what like would my dad be like raping my mum if they have sex and I'm like yeah okay again this is all context right context to the relationship context to like the situations in which things unfold like, I mean, no, no wonder young people aren't drinking if they're getting told that any time you get drunk, oh you're God. potentially a rapist. I mean, but, Jesus but, Christ. Okay, so again, like, I will not butcher the statistic on this, but a high percentage of married couples only have sex when they've been drinking because they need that lubricant <laughs> to be able to, to have sex. They just so... so we are not equipping kids to navigate really important stuff around capacity here, really vital, yeah? I'm not, like, telling, like, oh, yeah, never mind, have sex when you're drunk, have sex when you're sick. No, I'm not, like, throwing it out. What I'm saying is, is there are so many grey areas around mm. how we manage these context-specific things that we're not helping kids to navigate. We're not helping them to navigate, like, what does, like, intoxication look like and how might that affect what goes on sexually to better or worse you know there's lots of different sort of ways like the okay. literature on it is really nuanced like it alcohol or drugs in general like does sort of increase your propensity to feel that you want to have sex and that can lead to regret the next day also it can lead to people over interpreting your sexual willingness so they like if they're drunk they will like see you as more sexually interested mm. than you are. And there's loads of stuff that you can really unpick with kids. And we just don't. So, no. and, and that's what I think having those conversations, I don't want the boys to leave the room going, I know everything about consent and I'm an expert. I want them to leave the room going, oh man, this is all a bit more complicated than I thought. Do you know what though? I feel a little bit more mindful and maybe might try to deal with that in my sexual interactions with girls. Mm. I might actually try and communicate a bit more, or I might try to be more conscious of like body language and the signals that are being given off and blah, blah, blah. That's all I want them to do. I want them to go out into the world just being a little bit more self-aware and a bit more empathetic. We talk a lot about like, this narrative of like false accusations and the fear that boys and girls have of each other. 
And I try and break that down with them. And I try and say, like, what sits underneath some of those fears? Like, what could we do in a more positive direction? Everything I do in those conversations is say, right, and how can we now reframe it away from all the stuff like that me and you were talking about earlier in the podcast, away from that attack and defense thing? How can we move forward with this in a more positive direction? How do you deal with situations like where next day someone's like, I didn't really feel comfortable with that because do you know what consent does not mean pleasure you can still have crappy bad sex, sex yeah. did not feel good at all bad sex is not rape it's yeah right. and how do we deal with that i think if we have consent some bad sex we can handle right mm-hmm. because we can do oh, that god so knows good. a lot of women have had bad sex let's yeah. be real <laughs> not gonna be repeating that again sorry lads <laughs> yeah and and there is the orgasm gap and and it was interesting what you said about the virginity thing with boys shame is massive with yes. sex yeah yeah and i think if we can talk about that and be aware of that and and girls i think shame is almost the opposite isn't it around your rights to pleasure your rights to participate in sexual activity and that is an issue that unfolds culturally um for girls and boys and but you know what's cool when in your interpersonal relationships you can transcend some of that so girls can have really fulfilling great sex interpersonally that enables them to move away from those cultural ideas of shame and they can have their agency and autonomy. And what I try to encourage girls to think about their relationships with men is, is yeah, get the guys, yeah, it might not always be great sex because how do they know? It's all experimentation. You've got to find what you're into. But like have those relationships where you can rescind some of that shame and, and, and have a different sort of set of interactions. And likewise for boys, go for that in your relationships. Go for something whereby those cultural ideas can be just gotten rid of for a little while and you can have different sorts of interactions because it's really nice actually to have that and that's a really positive set of experiences girls are not the enemy they can actually be the source of something really nice and Mm. great and but it requires self-awareness it requires communication and, and genuine respect and mutuality regardless of one's view on consent workshops altogether if you just do them with boys and don't do them with girls, I imagine that would probably alienate them pretty quickly, much like the example I used to give when there was a girl who got bullied in my year in school and all the lads got called in during our lunch break to get bollocked, even though it was only three lads who did it. And we all sat here like, what the fuck are we doing here? It's Mm -hmm. them. Why are we here? Do you know what I mean? Special treatment, basically. Oh, absolutely. And again, it just feeds into the whole divisive rhetoric, doesn't it? Because the boys aren't stupid. They're like, I know why you're dragging us in. It's because you think we're all part of this male privilege thing. And Mm. it just feeds into this totally alienating narrative, complete disaster. I think you do need to create sometimes separate spaces. Boys need environments where they can talk as boys about their angle, just as girls do as well then you need to bring people together. Do you know what, though? I think, can the whole idea of consent workshops, just forget about it. Do workshops around why do we have sex and how can we make sure it's good and safe? Because consent is part of it. Loads of things are part of it. And then we can deal with all of those moving pieces that factor in to what is going on here. And then we're not even really talking about consent. Well, we are, but we're not putting that front and centre. We're not putting the law and who's the powerful one and who could hurt someone else and who's getting violated and all that. We're not talking about any of that. 
we are talking about all the different reasons for sex, all the different situations in which we have it and what it means to do that in the best way. And I don't mean best in terms of performance. I mean, best in terms of, you know, we can all feel comfortable about what's going down here. We can have our rights respected. You know, we we can get what we want without infringing on the rights of someone else and and all of that kind of stuff. And actually pose it as an open question. I've I've been doing this stuff with um, another academic where we've been trialing a bit of a different approach in schools. And we go in and we ask the question, what do we need to have in place to make sure sex is safe? And yeah, they bash out stuff, contraception, this, that, whatever. But then we get into the real thing of like, they go really nuanced on it. They're like, well, well, you need to know why the other person is there. Like, why are they there? Like, why are they wanting to have sex with you? Because you want to know that what you're consenting to is real. So like, if they're telling you, oh yeah, I really fancy you, want to like get with you. And then the next day you go into school and they totally ignore you. That can feel violating. You can actually say, well, that wasn't really consensual because I consented to something that wasn't real. Yeah, it isn't illegal. No laws have been broken, but you've made me feel super violated there. And so for me to like have safe sex, as it were, in that broad picture, I need to know the real truth about what you want out of me. And so you can have really good conversations and boys and girls do that to each other. Yeah, maybe a little bit gender stereotypical boys are more likely to do that to girls. But some of the lads were saying, no, girls can do it too. You you know, they're like, you have sex with a girl and like the next day, like it's all going around that like you had a small penis or whatever. And like, she's then laughing at you with all her mates. And then the, the boys are like, well, that's not cool. Like we feel that wasn't consensual. So you can have really good conversations about that. But strip out even the word consent from the title and call it something else, Mm. I think. You spoke about the different factors there. And another issue that is related to your work more widely is how to educate young people on domestic abuse and abusive behaviours. Now, you mentioned to me off air that girls have sometimes been able to get out of class, do a workshop on recognising unhealthy relationships in air quotes. But we both know that domestic abuse doesn't discriminate by sex boys and girls can both be abused. So what happened in the aftermath in that example, when you spoke with the boys who had to stay in a boring double biology class, for example, while the girls got to do that workshop? And how do we also give space to boys? Because they can easily be domestically abused by the girls as well, just as the girls can be by the boys. Yeah, I mean, it's a failure on two counts, isn't it? You've made healthy relationships the responsibility almost of girls to identify that's only like half of it, isn't it? But you've also reified that gender dynamic of, yeah, girls are the victims, boys are the abusers. And that's not cool for boys being categorised as the abusers. And also it normalises the idea that like it can't work in the other direction. It ignores the fact that boys can be victims of this stuff. I think off air I gave you that example, didn't I? Of I've asked young people before, okay, because young people will say coercive behaviours in relationships are often And I think the statistics somewhat bear this out, can be equally, if not more likely to be perpetrated by girls. So controlling and manipulative behaviours like girls telling boys, you can't speak to any other girl. I want to know where you are all the time, yada, yada. That can be perpetrated a lot by girls. And a lot of those patterns in relationships can be interpreted by young people regardless actually of the gender of who's perpetrating it as like loving and caring behaviors like they fancy me so much they can't let me go and 
And so there's a lot around that that you have to unpick with with young people. But I also asked them about more physical stuff. So the example I gave you, wasn't it? I said, okay, imagine a boy finds out that his girlfriend has been cheating on him and he walks up to her in the playground, slaps her face because he's so angry that she's cheated on him. And I said, what would the peer reaction be? And they'd be like, oh my God, no, that'd be like bang out of order. That's like domestic abuse and all this. And like the boy can't do that to the girl and stuff. And I said, all right, switch it. If the girl did it to a boy that she found out cheating on her and they all just did sit back and they were like, yeah, like I guess everyone would just think it's a bit of a scandal and like go that girl standing up for herself. And I was like, okay, therein lies the issue, isn't it? Like if that is the interpretation, because they were like, yeah, but the boy's stronger. The boy like, you know, can really hurt the girl and the girl probably didn't really even hurt him that much. And yeah, maybe there's some truth to that. I don't, I don't know whether that's true or not in practice, but well, physically, idea... maybe not. Maybe not socially. Yeah, exactly. And and also in an interpersonal relationship, we know that there are the big guys who you know as adults who are coming out saying like, "My little wife has been abusing me for a hundred percent." We need to break down that idea that strength and all of that worked in that way. And I. And I don't think it is cool that young people have internalised that narrative. So, so yeah, again, it goes back to the whole consent thing. We need to be equipping all young people with the ideas of how power dynamics work in relationships and how abuse works in relationships. That is not always obvious and can mean that boys can be victims just as much as girls and they can have unwanted sexual experiences. And also not just in an interpersonal way, but in a cultural way. How often is it that it's like, well, like, guys, come on, like, you always want to have sex. So you never have unwanted sex because boys are always horny and up for it. The guys around that boy will be like, well, what, you're telling me you were assaulted? Like, come on, you must have loved it. Even the social recognition of their accounts of abuse, because we talk about women being shamed and blamed when they report abuse, but boys, it's just trivialised and written off. Mm. So we're not reacting very well to anybody. And, and we've mentioned shame, I think masculinity and shame, let's say, I'm not, not toxic masculinity, but but there is those constructs of like, well, boys just don't get bothered by any of this. And so they're, they're not going to speak up. So for multiple reasons, we should not be assuming anything on a gender split with any of this. We need to be mm. tackling those stereotypes, mm. not imposing them by dragging the girls off to a workshop and the boys to another thing. It's not helpful at all. Mm. Before we reflect, I've got a couple of questions I I wanted to ask, particularly around how we build trust and disclosure. So a lot of my advocacy work and education for people around mental health stresses the importance of trust for men and boys before they disclose anything about their mental health, which tends to be far higher than women stereotypically when it comes to uh, disclosing emotions. So Mm -hmm. how do you build that for boys in a group setting, especially teenage boys? Because by and large, and I know this for a fact, because I probably would have done it myself, if they don't feel like it's 100% safe or that the feelings or what they say will get out, that they'll just resort to hazing banner. Yeah, for sure. And you're right. I think immediately they're not going to feel safe. And why would they? Because there's nothing there for them to be sure that they are safe. So you are going to get banter. And I think you've got to go with that, actually. Go with the banter. Boys want to joke around. They Mm -hmm. want to make it funny. So go with it. And they will test you out and they'll say and do things and go with it and make it safe for that. Make it clear that you are not going to be shutting them down and you're going to allow them to use the space in the way that they feel comfortable to do so. In my experience anyway, you find 
say like if you've I don't know like 80 20 like this because they will be a little bit serious because they're like okay yes we're in a workshop huh? and so you get maybe like 80 20 banter you get like 80 percent it's all banter and nonsense mm-hmm. and then like 20 percent a little bit serious and as you go through that process you it, switch it moves, that more yes, and more yeah. And I think you've got to work with that and you've got to provide the space. So it's like, if they say something, yeah, go with it and then try and reframe it into a more, okay, yeah, 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 cool. You're saying it like that, but right. So in a way, what you're trying to say is this and you're, you're, you're guiding, you. yeah, they yeah are, they and are. you guide them into something because the banter is real. There, there is something going on there that can be utilised. I think validating people and legitimizing Mm. them um something i get from parents is like yeah but like you do want to convey a message though don't you like it's not all just listening to them and giving them space and i'm like yeah but the thing is people don't want to be talked at it really bothers me with like how we approach teenagers because we're like oh why don't these teenagers listen to me and i'm like well why would they nobody wants to (laughs) listen to someone talking at them i don't you don't You've got to hear people out. It's got to be a dialogue. It's got to be a conversation. What I tend to find is like once you've done all that work to like hear out their banter, reframe it, do whatever, but very much you've led, they are then very receptive to you. So say, for example, I had like a 45-minute thing where all these boys are talking to me about all their opinions about girls and false accusations and this and that, and they were really going for it. And these guys, it was in the fields a bit of like misogyny it did get a little bit intense at times but I had to on one level hear it out and then because I had done all that I said to them all right guys like I think I've got the measure of what you think is happening here cool and I was like do you want to know like what I think about what you've just said and all of this and they were like oh my god yeah And I was like, well, I get that you think this. And then I started talking a little bit about like my interpretation of what they'd said, how I would maybe look at it from their angle and so on. And they were all like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'd given them that space Mm. already. So you can still give out your message. You can still push back and challenge some of what they've done. You have to listen and engage. Yes, You've got to listen first and you've got to do it off the back of what they're feeling. Because what I've said to teachers is, in particular, Boys says something about full taxation. What's the response? Get up your PowerPoint that says only 5% of rapes are falls. Is that helpful? No, because that's not speaking to their concerns. It doesn't mean anything. You've got to align your messaging with how they actually feel and what they are telling you they're concerned about. If you go off on another tangent that's got nothing to do with their underlying concerns, they're just going to go sit back and go, all right, then that wasn't helpful. And so we need to hear them out to make sure we are saying the right thing in response. But we can still get our message out there. We can totally do it. But you've got to do it for a captive audience. And we're not going to do it for a lecture. Just don't bother. Might as well not bother. You can do more harm than good. Mm. Well, as we both know, a one size fits all approach to men's mental health is never going to work. And what works for women stereotypically might not work for men. And, you know, I've spoken to a couple of commentators or men in this field, and I think we all agree that, you know, we don't want to teach young men that the best way to be men is to be failed women. <laughs> so. Oh, man, you are trying to get me cancelled, aren't you? I've already <laughs> freaking spoken about male privilege. <laughs> no, do you know what, though? I think I get what, what you're saying. I think the problem is... I am 100% down for emotional literacy. 
and self-awareness. And I think that everybody, male, female, whatever, needs emotional literacy. We need to be aware of of our emotions. You know, think of the example of like the rejection piece. Some of the way that men will react in an abusive way to rejection is because of like shame and that like that desire to like get rid of that shame and all the rest of it. So to deal with that, you need emotional literacy. You need to be able to self-regulate. You need to be able to be aware of why you're reacting to certain things in the moment. But what that emotional literacy looks like is not gender specific. It's not Mm. anything specific. It's individual. And yeah, whether or not we're saying failed girls... (laughs) <laughs> well, it's like it's like Louise Perry says, you know, Louise Perry argues that it's a bad message to give to girls that they can have sex like men and enjoy it. So yeah, what and, and I and I agree with that because yeah. the way women have sex and enjoy it without lies, of course, notwithstanding, is different for how men have sex. You know, men stereotypically have a much higher sex drive than women, etc, etc, etc. So well, my personal opinion is that, again, one size fits all doesn't approach. We shouldn't be telling men just go to therapy or just talk because it'll naturally solve all of their problems. I was massively helped by talking and therapy. I did five rounds of it, but I know that some men won't be helped by talking or therapy. They might actually feel worse for it, but they might see another man talking about it and be helped by it. So, you know, just like women might not all find therapy helpful. Do you know what I mean? A hundred percent. And what we need to work to do is remove the shame that surrounds all of that and enable the individual to find what works for them. And it works the same way with the sex thing. I agree with a lot of what Louise Perry is trying to argue on it. I, think I don't agree with everything Louise Perry no, says, by no, the way, no, but, but that, think, on that argument, I do no, agree No, no, no. <laughs> I think she throws the baby out in the bathwater a little bit with some of it, because I think actually we did need to do a lot of work to like get rid of the shame mm-hmm. around participation in sexual relationships and behaviours for women. What we then needed to do was enable personal choice around that. And, you know, we won't open up a whole nother can of worms. Sure. But I think the biggest failure of like certain feminist progression has been to create more boxes that people have got to fit into. Now women have got to go out to work and can't stay at home. Now women have got to go mm. and participate in male sexual behaviours because that's what, you know, empowerment well, looks like. Well, or say that it's actually men who are doing it rather than, say, pointing mm-hmm. out that Fifty Shades of Grey was one of the most popular books of all time with women for a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe yes. some women are more sexually experimental than men. With some, some of us are quite vanilla. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, God, men, they can be bloody terrified sometimes of what women are proposing. <laughs> I, yeah, 100%. I think we need to make room for individual differences, right? We need to Mm. free people from the baggage of these stereotypes and norms and all this crap, right? And that's what you try and do. You try and say, how can we like make space for that individual kind of variation? And exactly as you say, some men will benefit from certain things. Some will benefit from something else. Actually, emotional literacy is becoming aware of yourself as an individual and working with yourself as an individual, knowing what you need and knowing what you bring to the table. And that's why just sitting down and giving a set of boys a lesson on freaking male privilege... It's getting nobody anywhere. Less than 101 in alienating them. That's well, and that's the thing. Literally. You're not just alienating them from you as the person delivering the message. You're alienating them from themselves because you're yes. framing their identity through these big order constructs that don't even have any relationship necessarily to how they feel about themselves. And what I try and do with these boys is create space for like, what are you all about actually? And how can you get better at figuring that out for yourself, right? Because... For a boy that is, let's say a boy is in a situation with a girl where he's feeling uncomfortable, he's feeling like he doesn't want that to happen. What 
discursive hook does he have to hang that feeling on? Because he's got no framework culturally for understanding that fa- that, that feeling. Apart from maybe porn, which yeah. is not great either, to be honest. <laughs> exactly. The narrative of male privilege isn't helping. The narrative of all of it isn't helping. The narrative of, oh, well, maybe I should be like the girl and maybe I need to feminise my feelings, which I think is what you're sort of tapping into. Well, that's not helpful either. It's got to come down to the individual level of, of self-awareness and, and all the rest of it. And I think we need to get rid of some of the adult-centric assumptions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about what boys need based on a whole load of ideology about what's better or worse. And gender is act- a social construct. Exactly. We, we need to get rid Sorry. of all that and we need to deal with the individual. And we need to encourage boys to like have each other's back with that. And that's why... 100%. I'm, always, I'm, really I'm cool. a very... I'm a very big advocate of that on the podcast. You know, all yeah. the boys I, I chat to on my brothers, I, I've, I'm very much in favour of creating a, a sex-based class like the sisterhood is, but for mm-hmm. men. You know, I think we yeah. need to do more of that. We need to we need to have each other's backs more. We need to praise each other more. You know, hazing is the normally the way we show love to each other, but, you know, a compliment goes a really long way for a boy. That's why, that's why ironically, when a boy gets a compliment from a girl, we go, oh, my God, I oh might marry God, that what? girl because we never receive compliments. Yeah, and you know what? Like, we do the <laughs> same with girls. Like, the work I do with girls is, like, stop freaking slut-shaming each other. Stop mm. policing each other. Stop with the little digs about, like, what your mates eating and what they look like and stuff. Just stop it. Some of the most really Misogynistic comments I've heard are from women about other 100%. women. <laughs> and it's like, what is that social policing all about? Why do boys do it to each other? Why do girls do it to each other? Mm. Let's stop with all that. Like, come on, because we're bringing each other down and we're not enabling that space for our mates or whatever to really be themselves mm. and to learn who they are and all the rest of it. So there is the group level stuff that we need to deal with. Yeah. But that's not going to only be done through the group. Not everyone's going to end up the same. Right. But that's the cool thing of life. Why would we even want that anyway? <laughs> At the risk of making this a Lord of the Rings film length pod, let's reflect mm. on your academic journey, Emily. So what has this wide journey across 10 plus years taught you about yourself oh god i mean oh you use the word self-actualize uh, that's yeah, a very that, john peterson term i, I, oh I, I wish i could i wish i could come up with a better term but i can't oh, i know <laughs> what's your Jungian and archetype yeah. um yeah i am um, but you know i genuinely think i self-actualize through the work that i do um i re- as maybe i mean some people listening to this might be like what the frick is she even banging on about i disagree with everything she said i mean i've already sworn on this podcast you can say fuck <laughs> okay cool um <laughs> i mean i talk about yeah like waking someone up to oral sex and i'm like you can't swear oh that's it. not the explicit it's just the swearing yeah. part so that's explicit. No, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah you know i don't mind if people disagree i mean god i've changed my mind a million times over the last like 10 or so years that i've been doing this mm. i love that i think the world is a great talk to people that disagree with you i think that's my first rule for life i genuinely would say that talk to people on the other side you will either change your mind or you'll get better at understanding what you think just do it or be a Um, better person as a result i've actually found massively through this podcast massively as much as i love like chatting with you and yeah preaching to convert kind of thing yeah 100 you need to talk to people that disagree with you but I do genuinely like self-actualize through what I do. You asked earlier, like, yeah, why did you stay in academia? Partly because I'm institutionalized. Um, I know I could probably not, I could make more money because I'm so amazing. But no, just by definition, I have had to sacrifice income earning through my academic journey. 
but you do it because you believe in it. And I've really become passionate about it. And I've learned a lot about what I believe about the world around me and the way we should live and treat each other through all of this. So yeah, that's what I've kind of learned about myself. I've also learned though, that like it comes with a whole load of anxiety generating misery and that sort of self-employment piece of like you have to create the opportunities you have to put yourself out there like no one else cares other than you where this goes that is really intense and you have lit I know but on sleepless nights I literally have sleepless nights like I just lie there thinking I'm a complete failure I'm gonna be fired like uh, it's it's like really overwhelming you know and that ideal actual self thing, you know, the idea that, you know, you're an imposter and like all of that is, oh God, it's always there and it's horrible. So it's a love hate thing, I think. <laughs> We've talked at length, very much at length about your academic journey, Emily. We're now going to dive a bit deeper. This is the difficult part about your own mental health journey. So Firstly, I ask all my special guests on this topic, this question first. Take me back to early life and teenage years. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Emily we meet here? Oh, my goodness me. Yeah, so mental health experiences, personally, I didn't have, well, maybe I did, but there was nothing obvious. I was a very studious, perfectionist, control freak of a child probably um <laughs> so my my mum probably wouldn't put it in those terms but she would like it would be that kind of thing I delayed gratification was just like intense you know <laughs> I would wait hours for the second marshmallow in the old experiment I suppose and that was kind of me around me though my family is an interesting like most people's families right I, I have mental health issues in my family of origin and I think that's had a big impact on me other people's mental health I think actually in terms of my formative years and I think that led into adult mental health basically is how I would describe it for myself like adult mental health problems for myself. A lot of those mental health difficulties you mentioned seem to stem from the grief that you had mm -hmm. from losing your dad when you were 21 now, he had suffered from mental health difficulties and also addiction in those years prior to it. So just firstly, I want to start with the positive. Tell me about the relationship with him and, and the man he was. Yeah, so like my dad is a was a very interesting character. He, you know, and I know a lot of people say this, but he was remarkably intelligent. Our whole, we were very, very bonded around that. I, you know, we, we would stay, oh God, for as long as I can remember, very young child, we would stay up late into the night having very high level intellectual philosophical discussions about things. And, you know, he really laid that groundwork. I was going to say, was that the foundation um, of, of like, academia that you end up now? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And it was really incredible, quite adult though and I think you know that he treated me as an adult and that was good in some respects because it validated me and it legitimized me but I think as well we were very on that sort of cognitive level and whether or not I mean <laughs> I think one of my defense mechanisms uh, you know to use a psychological term is to over intellectualize and to look at things from a very cognitive perspective and as an adult I found it quite difficult almost to like 
verbalize like my feelings about things I've always analyzed Mm. them and you know that's been something my counselors and therapists have like become increasingly (laughs) exasperated by and yes but you know there was a lot of positives to it of course then yeah into teenage years his mental health um he had bipolar disorder and um alcohol addiction and that became more and more unsustainable and a really big well one of them alone is is difficult but when they interact with each other yeah that's that's mad yeah Oh God, it was awful. And you know, our whole family split up. There was lots of Mm. trauma, loss around our whole life and losing our dad. Like it's a living bereavement really before he died. You know, when, when someone has an addiction, it's You grieve the person they used to be Um, rather than who they are now. Oh God. Yeah. And it was very dramatic and, 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 you know, it's your teenage Mm. years. I mean, it's just, it's a mess and just, oh God, very chaotic and just, yeah, horrible. And then obviously, yeah, culminated in his death. And it was weird, his death, because it was very sudden. Um, he had a fit in the night and then he was dead. You know, he had meningitis wow. and that was it. It killed him. And it was a sort of meningitis that you get when, you know, like young children have it, babies have it. It was it was a certain strain of it that gets people whose immune systems are compromised. And, and you think, my God, you know, people deal with like alcoholism for freaking years. I mean, and he died like that quickly, almost relatively. So it was very sudden. It was very, oh God, it throws you for six. You you just don't know where you're going. And I have a lot of time for any bereavement that someone's going through. It's not a competition sure. of who's got it worse, but sudden death when you're 21 and it's your dad after all of that chaos, man, I mean, it did stuff to our family that was just, well, irreparable. It was a trauma that yeah, I mean, I just don't even know how to like make sense of it, really. Yeah, horrendous. For you, what was that grieving process like? Because with people that I've spoke to who've got family members with addiction issues, and I always say mental illness makes mm-hmm. good people do bad things, and which sometimes gets lost in this conversation about, oh, mental illness, let's remove all the stigma and all that. Well, actually, a lot of the people who are seriously, seriously mentally ill, and you look at stereotypes, mm-hmm. a lot of them do very bad things. You know, they are the ones most at risk of committing violence but a lot of them obviously are the ones who won't commit violence so I think we need to have a really nuanced conversation about it how did the grieving process affect you particularly actually it's interesting that you ask that because I have recently gone back into like a bit of therapy for various reasons that we maybe will mm-hmm. touch on and something that has been a realization in that therapy was that and it goes back to like what I was saying about intellectualizing things I found the first like year of it like really hard you almost are like Autopilot. You've gone temporarily yeah, insane, yeah, basically. Yeah. Like you go through those stages of grief. You're you're angry. You're guilty. You know the guilt. I mean, if you have not, like, I'm speaking to your listeners and viewers and stuff. If if you have not lost somebody yet, like close to you or whatever, be prepared for the guilt to absolutely floor you. You might think you've resolved some stuff in your relationship with that person. Like, oh God, it is just intense. Like, hopefully, it only lasts for a short period of time or whatever, and it doesn't mm. like overwhelm me or whatever but it is it's so horrible so I went through all of that it was hard but the thing is my my sort of way of relating to the world is on this intellectual basis and I have sort of spent the last 15 years of my life thinking that I had everything sorted that I was like I can deal with like my dad and like I miss the good sides of him and I've like you know I I can sit with the cognitive dissonance of like certain things about him I didn't like but you know that's cool and I can analyze it and blah blah I have now realized that that was not grieving at all. That was not processing anything. That was just an intellectual defense mechanism, (laughs) literally. And I haven't processed anything. And actually holding that cognitive dissonance, all I'm actually doing 
delaying gratification or delaying healing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And holding my dad, taking responsibility almost for him saying, oh yeah, dad, I take the rough with the smooth. I get it. You're just a person. Cool, cool. Mm. And not actually processing any of the effects that it's had on me. Like holding it for him, basically. Um, and so now I think I'm going to be at the start of a journey of unpicking all of that and like actually. There's no right something. age or wrong age. Emily. No, There's exactly. No right I mean, it's mental. So these things are a lifelong journey. Mm. Yeah. And I think in your points that you were making about almost the unpleasantness of how people are, I believe massively let's destigmatize mental health i don't on paper see anything wrong with that but what are we destigmatizing because mental health is horrendous well mental illness mental illness is mental illness sorry yeah not mental health health. mental illness when mental health goes wrong when when you become ill or whatever it's awful your charity run and isn't this all sweet no like you go through that with somebody Mm. you are talking about stuff that is horrible and I don't think we want to go no, we there. Don't. We, don't, we don't. We don't want to see it. What is said and done in the moment. I mean, oh God, you know, stuff my dad would come out with and say and do with the illnesses and problems that he had. And yeah, he's ill. But oh God, whoever said words don't hurt. Whoever says mm. whatever they say about things. No, it is awful. And my parents got divorced over it. That's Mm. why they got divorced. I mean, would you divorce somebody because they get run over by a bus and they're in a wheelchair? I mean, you know, you'd look like the most callous, awful person, wouldn't you? And I know my mum, I mean, I'm not going to speak for her. That's her journey. But, you know, she's had to deal with, like, I got divorced from someone who was mentally ill. Like, I, well, that's That's not a shame in itself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but you cannot tolerate it. Mm. It's awful. So that process, I think we need to, uh, what are we destigmatizing? Because I don't think people want to know. Yeah. And I don't want, I don't want them to know. I won't wish it on my worst enemy. It's awful. And my brother, again, I won't tell his story because it's not mine to tell, but you know, he reacted really badly to my dad's death. And that and that caused a lot of issues in the family dynamic. And mm. God, you know, there have been year years where we haven't spoken to him and had any relationship with him. That's what mental illness is. Mm. It's not this nice cushy charity run. It's horrible. Yes. And, you know, I don't know if people want to hear it. Whether You know, because we do, we, it's the defence mechanism, isn't it? We walk past the homeless guy on the street and we go, oh, we... Because we can't stare at it. It's too, it's too horrible for us to reflect. We on, don't want to know. Yeah. We don't want to know that that could be us or that could be our relative. Because it can be. It was my relatives. Mm. They are, you know, my dad was homeless for a while. My brother's been homeless for a while. You know, I know those people on the street. That we're mm. like, oh, why don't they just get a job? And I'm not going to give them any money because they'll spend it on whatever. Well, yeah, wouldn't you, though, if you were out in the freaking If you want an cold? escape from anything. Yeah. yeah. You know, we want to say we're apart from it. We want to say that wouldn't happen to us. And that means we can be really yes. nasty, actually. It's like child abuse, right? Mm. Okay. We all look at the NSPCC advert with the cute kid and we think, oh, we'll donate. The kids next door who look really scrappy and horrendous, we tell our kids not to play with them because they're dodgy and they're a bad influence. We want to, on abstract, we want to say how nice and destigmatized everything is. But in reality, when it's next door us or when we're walking past it, we want to go the other direction. Yes. And so I think we need to, we don't need, well, maybe we need another charity run. Yes, we <laughs> raise as much ch- money for charity as you want, but, but actually we'd be better served looking at our own judgments and biases on people and what we're willing to mm. like, expose ourselves to. And where do you draw the line between mental illness and personal responsibility for that person's actions Mm -hmm. that they inflict on another person if it is bad? You know, where do you draw the line between a gambling addict who's incredibly ill 
and spending loads and loads of cash and needs help with him or her stealing money from their mum or their dad or their work or, you know, committing these acts, which a lot of gambling addicts do do. So there's a very nuanced conversation here that I don't think is really being tackled enough in the mainstream because it is just about let's destigmatize let's have the same conversations and i said this very recently because it's men's health month that the same conversations happen around men's mental health every single year it's just break the stigma just reach out and i'm like 2016 was seven years ago mate yeah yeah that hasn't worked we need to talk uh, everything you've said i totally agree we need to deal with what is the meaning of boundaries because what i will say is like yes i will not shame you i will try and support you as much as possible but not to the detriment of myself i don't have to take this on if you are being cruel to me or you're not meeting my fundamental needs as a human being Yes, maybe we can root in your mental illness and that's not your fault, really. But I don't have to take on the burden of that because that's Mm -hmm. not my position to do so. And if I do take on that burden, I am potentially enabling you. And that's the problem, isn't it? Mm. You know, I might be doing more harm than good. Like, yeah, if I let you steal from me and I keep going back and I do this and that, I could be making you worse. So I can't do it for me and I can't do it for you. And that is so hard. That's Mm. really hard to disentangle. And you have a lot of guilt and inner conflict over that. Mm. And I knew it. I didn't see my dad for a year before he died. Something happened, which I won't meant to say, a year before he died, that was too much, way, way too much. Couldn't process Mm. it. And so I didn't see him for a year. And then he died. And I mean, what do you do with that? Because you're like, what is this decision-making that I... You now you're dead the worst nightmare has happened but my processing has had to be that I had the right to make that decision mm-hmm. and I what I'm not to blame for the outcome like mm-hmm. nobody could have predicted the outcome but you know how do you navigate that and like you say we're not talking about that, that no. real like crux of it at all no well you mentioned therapy there and you said to me off air that you kind of either consciously or subconsciously took on this role as therapist for your family how do you look back on that period did it affect you negatively was it just your way of positively distracting yourself how do you reflect on the Emily that that was there at that point yeah I mean on the one hand it's a coping mechanism isn't it so it did work and it did enable me to like get through all this time period of like quite high accomplishment actually you know studying and getting my PhD and working and doing all the stuff that I was getting done and so I looked like a very functioning adult notwithstanding everything else you know that I've been through I think on the one hand intellectualizing has its place so I was able to do some processing through it through like working things out I didn't get as like stuck in grief stages because I was able to kind of think about them in a certain way however on the more sort of negative side as it were I think I became increasingly alienated from myself and people around me. You know, like what we've been saying about the boys, if you go too meta, if you go too high, you're not enabling someone to understand themselves. And I think I like almost then don't understand how to articulate my own feelings because I I wasn't doing it. I've got out of practice of just talking about how I feel. Um, you know, I will go to analysing how I feel. I don't know how to label my feelings or whatever. And I think in terms of my interpersonal relationships, I got increasingly alienated from people because I'm not saying this is true because I've spoken to these people and this is not what they intended at all. But it's this realisation of like, I'm just people's pseudo therapists. That's 
my relationship with them. They don't really care about me. They only love me because I'm playing this role for them in their life. And that was really like weird for me for a while and caused some interpersonal problems, shall Mm. we say. Um, And I had to reset my boundaries a little bit because I now have to have different conversations, more balanced conversations with people, more boundaried, basically. I'm not going to be able to just listen to you for like half an hour in that way and like, ah, then just analyze it all. That's not healthy necessarily. I can do that at work. That's my work life, right? And I get supervision at work and I deal with all of that. That's not my family life. That's not my partner and me that we can't really do that. I can't take on all of your feelings. You can't save Um, everyone. No. And like, if I tell you how I feel, we can't like then just loop back and make it all about you. We, it has to be equal. And, you know, and I've done quite well, actually, and, and not just me, but the people who care about me, you know, of resetting some of that. And that's been a really good journey, actually. But I had to, I had a therapist say to me, like, yeah, you can blame everyone else for like expecting it from you. But like, what's your ego in it? What do you get out of it? And I had to be really honest and be like, it was cool being the stronger one Mm -hmm. and being the one that wasn't a basket case. There's responsibility in that, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I'm kind of better. I'm like, I'm not going to like have a nervous breakdown about stuff. I like, I can handle it. And yeah, I had to lose some of the ego side of it. So there was a lot of stuff to do around that over the last few years. Yeah. I want to fast forward to when you started work as a lecturer, because it was here that you also developed an eating disorder, specifically anorexia. Can you just tell me first about the combination of factors that caused it to develop, maybe how it manifested and how it impacted your mental health at the time? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so this was like about, where are we now? Yeah, God, how old am I? 35, yeah, so about five years ago. So, oh, I'm 36 actually, yeah. Um, But yeah, that long ago, like it was an adult onset basically. And that was the start of me having to like think about my relationships like that's kind of what's been going on the last few years. And I think this increasing sort of alienation from myself manifested a little bit in like a restrictive eating disorder, you know, like it was a pattern. So that almost disconnection from my own hunger maybe was a bit of a trait that I was able to go down that dark path. And so, yeah, basically I started this lecturing job after finishing my PhD. I was getting married that year. Lots of stuff was going on in my family around like my brother and like what was going on for him and then my mom and the roles I was playing within that dynamic. And and I think a lot of stuff came together, coupled with a my cocktail, kind of... shall we say. Yeah. Indeed. I went on a diet because people were like, oh yeah, you're getting married this year. So like, are you going to go on a diet? And that's a really normalized thing that like people say to women. Is that like to fit into the wedding dress sort of thing? To fit into the wedding dress that I'd already been fitted to my existing body. So like, I have no idea why I I needed to be resized like three times. It was terrible. And I had a Fitbit. And so fine, I'm on the proverbial diet that everybody thinks I should be on and even though I was a completely normal weight and so I didn't need to go on diet and what I did I knew my issue not my issue no it was not an issue but what I felt was my issue at the time was portion control like I love food so much that like I would just have like a whole mountain of food and me and my like partner like fiance at the time would like joke around he'd be like you literally cook for the 5,000 and all of this and like and so I knew it's not what I eat it's how much of it I eat so I got really into portion control and because I had a Fitbit telling me how many calories I was burning I got into like well as long as I'm just a little bit beneath that every day I'm cool 
Well, I mean, intellectualizing everything, weighing out food and counting calories was sweet for the way my brain operated. After about a month of doing it, I was counting calories maybe 20 times a day. I was looking up how many calories were in things. I was weighing everything. It was so ordered and controlled in my brain. But disordered in real life. Yeah, yeah. Disordered in real life. But that ability to do that, coupled with going into that metabolic sort of like calorie deficit, hunger high, man, I was on fire. I was barely sleeping. I was bouncing down the corridor. I have never been so hyper efficient in my life. So I was feeling on cloud nine. And then I'm losing weight. People are complimenting me saying I look really good. The validation starts. The validation of it. Oh God, one thing after another. Well, in three months, I'd stopped having periods. I was right at the bottom of my BMI. My husband was like, this is not normal. But I'm like, but what? I'm I'm great. I'm I'm, I'm the best version of myself. That's what people don't realise. So, Sometimes that can happen with people who have got God, yeah. yeah. I, I I describe it as the same as like those drug addicts who say the first time they took a drug, they were like, I found the solution to all my problems. Why did I not find this years ago? But you have not found the solution. You the devil is there on your shoulder dragging you into what will be the biggest misery of your life my brother uses the expression you were at the party having the best time of your life and then the party is over Mm. and you are stuck in misery and by the end of that year i was yeah it was horrible a metaphorical (laughs) k-hole literally yeah 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 literally my husband couldn't even cope with me Mm. Uh, you know I don't like going too much down the route of like specific eating disorder behaviors but I was I was in like I you know triggering Mm -hmm. like one of a excessive word but like I had started to engage in like really sort of dangerous behaviors I was really chaotic around food I, I could not even it was all that was in my mind and my partner was just at the end of his tether and I knew that it was wrong what was going on but it was that like I know it's wrong but like it's the only thing it's like don't take this away from me like Mm. because I can't handle it and so I went to the doctor off my own back and I said I think I have a problem because also another thing I used to do with my husband oh I was so cruel it was horrible I'd be like don't because he'd be like I think you have an eating disorder and I'm like don't you mansplain to me about an eating disorder. I'm the psychologist. I know what an eating disorder is. Yeah, maybe I have disordered eating. Maybe some of my patterns aren't great, but that is not an eating disorder. And if I quack like, like a duck and I walk oh like a God, duck, like, doesn't mean I'm a just, duck. <laughs> exactly. But I was totally using all of my life. I know more than you about psychology. Mm. Why are you telling me? And like, that is just so horrible. Again, you the know, dark side I'm, of mental illness. That is. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh. I like he will tell you about the dark side of dealing with an adult with an eating disorder who you've got to have a lot of patience (laughs) oh my god bless him I just yeah horrible horrible business but yeah and I went to the doctor off my own back because I knew something was wrong and I said I think I have disordered eating that may or may not constitute an eating disorder and yeah then it's the long slow slog of recovery and yeah it's been an interesting journey obviously lockdown corresponds oh god yeah and and for me you know as much as i have certain opinions about lockdown and anybody that knows me knows what i think of all of that uh, for me i don't think i would have recovered were it not for 
having like my husband like always there like the meal plans and the like because that was part of the issue with the the nature of my eating disorder because I worked predominantly alone. My husband was working in finance institute at the time, working all hours of the day. The ability to like control what I ate, I just was eating 90% of the time by myself. And so him being there and that accountability was like massive for me Mm. because I am a bit of the belief, this is simplifying it, but you do have to eat to recover. Your brain is not logical. You, You will always be frightened of food until you start weight restoring. It's like the drug addict that needs to get clean to even be able to see what's going on around them. And I think the same, well, definitely for me anyway, you do need to eat Mm. and that's really hard and you need a lot of support to do so and like getting that from my partner always being there and I, I mean I would eat and then I would sit on the sofa and cry all night and he'd have to be there with me there's no way I would have done that alone like Mm. no chance so in some senses that was a really helpful part of like recovery for sure and you have to go through all the like different hoops you've got to jump through you know grieving for your skinny body and all the stuff you've got to deal with yeah and you need a lot of therapeutic help around that and it's definitely up and down and people tell you you've recovered and then you're going off throwing up everything you've just eaten Mm. i mean it's just like the games you play is so ongoing yeah before we talk about recovery in depth you mentioned there about going to the gp and i just want to drill a bit deeper on this because the response was quite problematic and i think that speaks to the wider issue that we've still got to tackle around eating disorders which as we both know are one of the most dangerous mental illnesses you can have for death literally Mm -hmm. and the education in the medical system you know hope virgo you're probably aware of her queen hope i call her yeah i love her she came on the pod like years ago like four years ago and she is you know one of the leading lights on this and she's talked loads and loads about being told that she wasn't skinny enough to have an eating disorder and all this sort of stuff just tell me the listeners about your response that you got to the medical system when you disclosed about your periods and obviously the disorder eating. yeah so before i went in saying i have an eating disorder i had been going in and out of the doctors for a while because I'd like lost my period and they were dealing with it purely as like a gynecological thing. So I'm being referred to like gyno and fertility to figure out what's going on with it. They were weighing me a lot. They weren't asking me anything about any of that. And with one doctor, he actually did ask me, he goes, you're very at the low end of BMI and you look very like almost like physically fit. Cause I was doing a lot of like overexercising behaviors and stuff. And he was like, what's your diet and exercise like? And this was in about like the summer. And I was a bit like my husband was very like, what are you doing kind of thing? Mm -hmm. So I did kind of say, I said, oh, well, you know, I don't really know. But like my partner like thinks I exercise too much and that like I might like my diet, you know, I'm massively underplaying it in that way that people do who are like ill or whatever. But like you're putting it out there. And he said to me, oh, well, what do you think about, like, your eating and exercise? The classic GP question. <laughs> oh, they do. What do you think's, yes, wrong? What do you think's okay. wrong with you? <laughs> and you're like, well, you're the freaking expert, mate. Yeah, that whole patient-centered thing, like, has done more harm than good in some senses. But, yeah, like, I said, oh, well, I don't know. Like, I don't really think I've got a problem or whatever. And he looked at my records and he goes, you have lost weight over the year. And I was like, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like I'm just exercising a lot and I just, you know, I'm okay. But, like, my husband just, he keeps telling me I'm doing too much. And he said, and the guy said, oh, well, like, as long as you think you're doing all right. He goes, the problem is sometimes in like partner, like relationships, he's like when one person loses weight, the other person can get a bit envious and like can start to like negatively comment on it. But like, as long as you think you're all right, you know, I wouldn't worry. So I just left. And, and that was the end of it. And it was so odd because I know in the alcohol questionnaire, 
that they give you out, one of the boxes you have to tick is like, has anyone in your personal life told you you think you have a problem with alcohol? Because actually that's one of the big things. Mm. That's one of the big indicators because the person doing it does not think they're doing anything wrong or will maybe there's a little voice in their head, but they'll always resist it. It's our people closest to us. If they're saying they're worried about us, that's a big alarm bell that should, should go off. And it's shocking then that the GP responds in that way. And not just in the moment in terms of missed opportunity for treatment and diagnosis. Also, I was able to go back to my husband saying, the doctor says there's nothing wrong with me and you're envious. So that probably delayed me even dealing with anything, totally gaslighting my partner. It was, yeah, not cool. Mm. And I think some of it comes from the weight thing that you mentioned. I always hovered around like the bottom end of BMI. If I'd been beneath it, it'd probably be a different conversation. Mm. So it's ridiculous. And I was told when I finally got referred to eating disorder treatment, they were like, yeah, you know, you are at bottom end of BMI, but like we would recommend you get to like 20 because for you that would constitute a healthy recovery. And I'm like, well, why is the bottom end of BMI 18.5 then if 20 is healthy? And she said, oh, well, everybody's an individual. And I was like, well, should we just stop using BMI then and treat people as individuals, please? I mean... Oh, it's it's a she said, she, said, she said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was a bit like, it is bloody ridiculous, yeah. you know. But yeah, you know, it's not helpful. And I totally agree with the whole Hope Virgo line on dump the scales, mm-hmm. definitely. I also think, yeah, we need much more training of primary care to spot mm-hmm. this stuff. Even if it's not the primary presenting condition. I was turning up about my period. It should be eating disorder. Any woman that is turning up about magically losing our periods an eating disorder should be dealt with mm. i think you know as a potential mm-hmm. cause not that, that that's always the case stress there can be lots of factors at play Endome- but, endometriosis mm. and all sorts of stuff, stuff. Yeah, yeah it could sure, be anything sure. but full screening should include yes. tell us what you eat in a day you know like we ask how many units of alcohol do you do you drink in a week we should go down that route if a woman is is presenting with unexplained infertility Let's talk about recovery then. So what tools did you develop during the therapy or outside of it that have helped you manage the ED and maybe hopefully overcome it? Yeah, so definitely at the time, dealing with the um, anxiety that would be triggered through eating. So um, I was told quite early on that you're not just using it as a psychological coping mechanism. Physically, your anxiety is is there. You will have an anxiety response to food. So, and that was something that was told to like my partner and stuff. She's not being difficult. She is genuinely having a like a physical anxiety effect and getting certain things in place to deal with that. So, like me and my partner, we just sit on the sofa and have like stupid conversations, like about nonsense. And like I just say to him, like sometimes we'd be watching TV. And I just, it'd be anxiety, like raging in my brain. And I'd be like, turn this off. I need to talk to you because I'm just so anxious. And it would be that like processing those feelings and like, and oh, and he did, you know, beat the eating yes, strategy. Yeah, yeah. He did 10 sessions with them. Oh, that amazing. Like, what a man. What a man. Oh, honestly, he's just so cool. I love him. And like, he did that. And like, that was awesome. Because as much as I needed to go for the treatment and stuff, he needed to, to like, know. He needed to know what to do. Know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Exactly. And to know what he's bringing to the table that may or may not be making things worse, not intentionally. But you know, all of that, that was so, so helpful. And like being honest with people, mm. like talking to my friends about like what, 
okay, this has happened. And like getting that support from them as well. And like not having, it's the enabling thing and the cluding thing is difficult because certain parts of my recovery were about like, you're not fat though. So like, don't worry about it. And I'm be like, "Mm, but like, maybe I need to overcome the fear of being fat and putting weight on. Like maybe that's part of the problem. Like just being told that I've got body dysmorphia. Like, but what if it is true? What if I do need to get bigger? I actually need to be helped through that too. And so I had to like that therapeutic part of it was helpful and dealing with like, why have I now got this like identity thing or like, Mm. this is my set of value because I was a bit like, well, you know, if, if the world around me is uncontrollable, I could be fired. I could be this, I could be that. Well, one thing I can control is being thin and that is a social value. It is true. This notion that it, oh, people don't care whether you're fat or thin. They like you for you. Bullshit. No, they don't. Our society values thinness. You will get complimented when you lose weight. You will get treated better when you lose weight. Fact. And we need to face up to that and 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 deal with that and and actually that therapeutic journey of like when people were complimenting me at my lowest weight when I was so ill that is a sign of like a cultural sickness in our society that that we would value that that that's what we compliment not those individuals I'm not criticizing them for complimenting me but I'm saying they're acting out a cultural sickness through that compliment I look back at pictures and I'm like, how the flip was anyone complimenting me? I looked was like, it like I was freaking fame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, what? And what I learned through therapy is, is it is not your job to chase that compliment. It is your job to sit back and go, oh man, isn't it sad that I was complimented when I was most unwell? And actually processing that took a long time. And there's always a little part of me that wants to go back there, that wants to be like, what's that anorexia trap? I want to recover in the same body basically i want to keep that the, the skinniness thing but like cognitively like ha- eat the, re- the the same food and do all the normal stuff around food and i believed that at the beginning i believed that i could do both but you can't do both that's mm. the anorexic trick you cannot do both and it's weird because at first you think you can because you almost have a bit of like hyper metabolism when you start to eat like you don't put weight on straight away so you're like oh i can i'm keeping my body and look i just ate a meal isn't this cool but no, no, that doesn't last forever. You have to put on weight. And I think getting getting that help through that was really important for sure. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now, Emily. So A, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the 21-year-old Emily who had just lost her dad, maybe the Emily who was in the grips of that eating disorder, or the Emily who was worrying about whether her placing healthy boundaries would make people not love her anymore or like her anymore what would you say to her knowing what you do now yeah god I mean I think I'd say you will entrench a pattern of believing that people only like you or love you through through interacting in a certain way it's it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy you'll make it real don't do it you know you are 21 You are not responsible for holding other people's emotions, dead or alive. You're not actually responsible for holding your dad as this split like personality. You're not responsible for supporting your family through their grief journey in ways that work and stuff. Don't make this real for yourself. Be you. If you want to intellectualize, do it, but like only do it as part of the picture. You must also process your feelings and talk about your feelings, you know, on a more sort of prosaic point 
I would recommend, like particularly with like sudden deaths and traumatic deaths like we had, it might be worth getting family therapy a bit to like make sure that how it unfolds is is as healthy as it can be because all families are going to fracture and all families are going to start playing roles that will replicate patterns from like childhood. But yeah, I think I'd say you don't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders and don't create patterns or don't entrench patterns for yourself that are actually going to be really harmful, even if at the time it might feel like you're rising above the fray and that it's making you feel good. In much the same way that I tell the eating disorder person like five years ago, don't buy that Fitbit and don't go on a diet. Just don't do it. It's a slippery slope. Our final topic of conversation, Emily, and I'm wary about saying to the listeners that is a dog in the background or a cat slurping some water. So, <laughs> yeah, he's literally just drinking some water. He will stop in a minute. So no, that's fine. I just wanted to make sure the listeners see what that was. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have come to our final topic, which is a general natter and quick fire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, pal? Oh, God, big question. So right now, in this current moment in time, good because as I was saying earlier I self-actualize through my work I am my most happiest self when I'm doing things like this in general though yeah I have gone back into therapy and I'd say that's because there's been some like adjustments in my lifestyle to say the least and I won't go into all the details around that and that has sort of whipped up a bit of messiness again for me you know around like eating behaviors mm-hmm. and like just my general state of mind and so I figured it was maybe a good time to just drop back into like yeah getting a bit of help you know like I was saying in the answer at the end before got to know those early warning yep. signs and tell yourself what to do before before you go in too deep. So that's what I'm trying to do right now. <laughs> Excellent. Good to hear. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Yeah, probably only a few years ago. Yep. Okay. And was it a eureka moment or a gradual process? Gradual. Yep. Okay. And can you also remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who is it with? What did you say? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted or something quite easy and normal to do? Yeah, first time I had a conversation about my mental health was with my mum when my dad first died. And she said to me that if I was struggling, I should go to the doctor because you should get help for your mental health. And everyone sort of has mental health and should be aware of it and should deal with it. And I found it really odd and unfamiliar terrain to even like consider myself as needing to think about my own mental health rather than it being like something I would analyze and like write an essay Mm -hmm. about and read a book about. So I found that very odd. Yeah. About my mental health, you know? Yeah, obviously with other people's mental health, no, many, Mm. many conversations about (laughs) other people's mental health, yeah. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Yeah, I think in terms of like what people say, I think whenever anybody goes down the route of saying like that I've got things sorted or they think I'm like somebody that can just like talk about everything and figure everything out and that I'm so like collected and blah, blah, blah. I like find that internally so triggering because I'm just like, oh my God, no, you're putting me in that box again where like I don't have any legitimate feelings and and all the rest of it. And so I find that really, really hard to kind of cope with. 
And but even then being called upon to talk about my feelings without intellectualizing them, I find very triggering and uncomfortable because I don't know how to do that. So it's almost like people can't win either way with me, basically. Mm. Bless them. That's what my husband always says. He's like, I ask you to talk about your feelings and you don't. And then you tell me that we don't talk about your feelings. And he's like, what do you want? What do you want? He's like, you have to do it too. Yeah. So I'd say like, that's the kind of like issue for me, like massively. Mm. Also, I'm not great around other people's eating behaviors. Like when they start talking about losing weight and food and like what they're doing around food. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nightmare for me. Yeah. Conversely, then, what positive tools do you use to improve your mental health? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? So in terms of what I try and do, I verbalise it. Like before, I would like go into myself and go on like a kind of doom loop around, oh, well, you know, like they're saying this to me or doing this. And then that's all like, oh, horrible, horrible. But now I just say it. If someone's like, oh, yeah, Emily, like you're so sorted. And I'm just like, man, you know, when people say that to me, it always makes me think like, well, that's like not true or whatever. You don't know who I am. (laughs) Yeah, we just talk about it. Because the problem is I have some problems with disassociation. And that's what my like recent therapist has said. And so I try to ground myself. I like, and that's through sensory stuff, isn't it? So like I talk it out. I'm like, I must reassociate what you have just said on a very minor level might cause me to disassociate from myself because I don't see that as fully representative of me. And so I try to like reassociate through the conversation and I don't do it in a combative way. I'm not like, you know, said this in a horrible way. Um, I just do it in a really calm way. And I, you know, and that's great because they're the people I have in my life and whatever. And I think being honest is good for your relationships. And I think it's good for you. And that's what I find helpful. What I don't find helpful is offloading to someone else. So what I used to do was say, like, if my mum would say something, I'd go home and, like, rant at my husband about it for half an hour. And that would be, like, oh, I'm getting it off my chest. But it's not. It's just whipping up anger and stuff. And, like, it just doesn't move you forward. And so I found that is not actually helpful. You have to be honest, if you can, in the scenario, not just going off on one at someone else. That being said, sometimes I've found it helpful to like pause. You know, if someone triggers you and you sit and you think to yourself for a while, like give it a day and you sort of wake up the next day and you think, come on, like that's not really a big deal. You know, like that therapeutic exercise of like writing a letter and you don't post it. And then actually you look back on the letter and you're like, I'm kind of over this. or not over it, but I actually don't need to go and bring it to the other person. Like, cool, it was nice just to process it by myself for a bit. So I think for me, it's about knowing what do I need like to do and being that self-aware about what's going to work. What has been the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be self-help or mental health related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, an album, a TV show, or any piece of popular culture. Yeah, so do you know what? The book... I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it, but if you just search the book, it's fine. It's called like The Courage to Be Disliked. Oh, that came up in the last episode. <laughs> oh, balls. Okay, yeah, I'm so yeah, Oh, yeah. no, that's so annoying. But for me, I did love it because it really fed into the whole idea of boundaries. What is your task to take on and what isn't? If other people have something going on, 
or even don't like you, that is not your problem. Yes, okay, you've got to do you kind of thing. You cannot internalize that to that extent. And I found that a really helpful one to read in terms of boundaries. Ichiro Kashimi and Fumitaki Koga, The Courage to Be Disliked. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I literally discussed it with a previous guest called Teddy Lang who literally referenced that as well. So it's funny that it's come up in like two of the last three episodes. And it ties into that whole idea around cultural sickness about complimenting people who are underweight it's another idea of that like that's not for me to internalize and and take on that that's Mm. their thing you know totally if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why oh my god a mantra like a quote or a favorite phrase or a saying yeah i think the idea of okay like i have a couple of things like we spend our whole lives worried about what people think of us when most of the time they're not thinking about us at all. I can't remember who that philosopher is who says that, but I think it's true. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. I like the idea of human beings don't know what's good for them. Don't ever yeah. trust that you think you know what is good for you because you don't. Mm-hmm. You, you've got a whole load of cognitive biases, of coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms and a load of stuff going on in there that means that what your conscious mind thinks it's good for you sometimes isn't and that's not really a mantra but like I tell Mm. well the the, you don't know what's good for you sometimes is it is a bit more of a mantra and I think it's often true I've got two questions left the first one is what do you love about yourself oh god I love that I am genuinely curious it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning I like talking to people that disagree with me I don't want to just reaffirm what I already believe I am genuinely Mm. curious and I don't believe that I know everything and could ever possibly know everything. And I don't want to. I want to just constantly keep discovering from other people. So yeah, I kind of like that about myself and I'd recommend it to other people. Excellent. I've got one question left. It's a broad one. You can answer it any way you want. What more do you have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to stuff we were talking about in the main bit is don't assume that you know what it should look like. It doesn't necessarily need to be a feminized version of it, but it also doesn't need to be a masculized version. We need to create space for other people to figure out what it looks like for them. Whether or not they even want to do it is the first start of that, because actually maybe they don't. And that's okay. But if they do, it's them defining what it looks like and what emotional literacy looks like 100%. Dr. Emily Setti, it has been an absolute pleasure. This might be the longest episode, single episode I ever put out, to be fair. So thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Thank you so much. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a massive thank you to Emily for being my special guest and for letting me check in with her. I'll put a link to where you can follow Emily on social media and find out more about all the brilliant work she's doing to help young men in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the venters who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this podcast a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at Vent, please consider also supporting us by going to patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.